Audible Studios presents The Sellout, written by Paul Beatty, performed by Prentice Oniemi. Prologue This may be hard to believe, coming from a black man, but I've never stolen anything. Never cheated on my taxes or at cards. Never snuck into the movies or failed to give back the extra change to a drugstore cashier indifferent to the ways of mercantilism and minimum wage expectations. I've never burgled a house, held up a liquor store, never boarded a crowded bus or subway car, sat in a seat reserved for the elderly, pulled out my gigantic penis, and masturbated to satisfaction with a perverted yet somehow crestfallen look on my face. But here I am, in the cavernous chambers of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, my car illegally and somewhat ironically parked on Constitution Avenue, my hands cuffed and crossed behind my back, my right to remain silent long since waved and said goodbye to as I sit in a thickly padded chair that, much like this country, isn't quite as comfortable as it looks. Summoned here by an officious-looking envelope stamped important in large sweepstakes red letters, I haven't stopped squirming since I arrived in this city. Dear sir, the letter read, Congratulations. You may already be a winner. Your case has been selected from hundreds of other appellate cases to be heard by the Supreme Court of the United States of America. What a glorious honor. It's highly recommended that you arrive at least two hours early for your hearing scheduled for 10 a.m. on the morning of March 19th, the year of our Lord. The letter closed with directions to the Supreme Court building from the airport, the train station, I-95, and a set of clip-out coupons to various attractions, restaurants, bed and breakfast, and the like. There was no signature. It simply ended, Sincerely yours, the people of the United States of America. Washington, D.C., with its wide streets, confounding roundabouts, marble statues, Doric columns and domes, is supposed to feel like ancient Rome. That is, if the streets of ancient Rome were lined with homeless black people, bomb-sniffing dogs, tour buses, and cherry blossoms. Yesterday afternoon, like some sandal-shod Ethiop from the sticks of the darkest of the Los Angeles jungles, I ventured from the hotel and joined the hodge of blue-jeaned yokels that paraded slowly and patriotically past the Empire's historic landmarks. I stared in awe at the Lincoln Memorial. If Honest Abe had come to life and somehow managed to lift his bony, 23-foot, 4-inch frame from his throne, what would he say? What would he do? Would he break dance? Would he pitch pennies against the curbside? Would he read the paper and see that the union he saved was now a dysfunctional plutocracy, that the people he freed were now slaves to rhythm, rap, and predatory lending, and that today his skill set would be better suited to the basketball court than the White House. There he could catch the rock on the break, pull up for a bearded three-pointer, hold the pose, and talk shit as the ball popped the net. The great emancipator. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. Not surprisingly, there's nothing to do at the Pentagon except start a war. Tourists aren't even allowed to take photos with the building in the background, so when the sailor-suited family of Navy veterans, four generations deep, handed me a disposable camera and asked me to follow at a distance and secretly take photos of them while they snapped to attention, saluted, and flashed peace signs for no apparent reason, I was only too happy to serve my country. 
At the National Mall, there was a one-man march on Washington. A lone white boy lay on the grass, fucking with the depth perception in such a way that the distant Washington Monument looked like a massive, pointy-tipped Caucasian hard-on streaming from his unzipped trousers. He joked with passerby, smiling into their camera phones and stroking his trick photography priapism. At the zoo, I stood in front of the primate cage listening to a woman marvel at how presidential the 400-pound gorilla looked sitting astride a shorn oaken limb, keeping a watchful eye over his caged brood. When her boyfriend, his finger tapping the informational placard, pointed out the presidential silverback's name coincidentally was Baraka, the woman laughed aloud until she saw me, the other 400-pound gorilla in the room, stuffing something that might have been the last of a big stick popsicle or a Chiquita banana in my mouth. Then she became disconsolate, crying and apologizing for having spoken her mind and my having been born. Some of my best friends are monkeys, she said accidentally. It was my turn to laugh. I understood where she was coming from. This whole city's a Freudian slip of the tongue, a concrete hard-on for America's deeds and misdeeds. Slavery, manifest destiny, Laverne and Shirley, standing by idly while Germany tried to kill every Jew in Europe. Why, some of my best friends are the Museum of African Art, the Holocaust Museum, the Museum of the American Indian, the National Museum of Women in the Arts, and furthermore, I'll have you know my sister's daughter is married to an orangutan. All it takes is a day trip through Georgetown and Chinatown, a slow saunter past the White House, Phoenix House, Blair House, and the local crack house for the message to become abundantly clear. Be it ancient Rome or modern-day America, you're either citizen or slave, lion or Jew, guilty or innocent, comfortable or uncomfortable, and here, in the Supreme Court of the United States of America, fuck if between the handcuffs and the slipperiness of this chair's leather upholstery, the only way I can keep from spilling my ass ignominiously onto the goddamn floor is to lean back until I'm reclined at an angle just short of detention room nonchalance, but definitely well past courtroom contempt. Work keys jangling like sleigh bells, the court officers march into the chambers like a two-by-two wagonless team of crew-cut Clydesdales, harnessed together by a love of God and country. The lead Dray, a proud Budweiser of a woman with a brightly colored sash of citations rainbowed across her chest, taps the back of my seat. She wants me to sit up straight, but the legendary civil disobedient that I am I defiantly tilt myself even farther back in the chair, only to crash to the floor in a painful pratfall of inept nonviolent resistance. She dangles a handcuff key in my face and, with one thick hairless arm, hoists me upright, scooting my chair in so close to the table that I can see my suit and tie's reflection in its shiny, lemony-fresh mahogany finish. I've never worn a suit before, and the man who sold me this one said, you're going to like the way you look. I guarantee it. But the face in the table staring back at me looks like what any business suit wearing, cornrowed, dreadlocked, bald headed corporate afro black man whose name you don't know and whose face you don't recognize looks like. He looks like a criminal. When you look good, you feel good, the salesman also promised me. 
Guaranteed it. So when I get home, I'm going to ask for my $129 back because I don't like the way I look, the way I feel. I feel like my suit. Cheap, itchy, and coming apart at the seams. Most times, cops expect to be thanked. Whether they've just given you directions to the post office, beaten your ass in the back seat of the patrol car, or in my case, uncuffed you, returned your weed, drug paraphernalia, and provided you with the traditional Supreme Court quill. But this one has had a look of pity on her face ever since this morning when she and her posse met me atop the Supreme Court's vaunted 44th stair. Under a pediment inscribed with the words equal justice under all, they stood shoulder to shoulder, squinting into the morning sun, windbreakers dotted with the dandruff of fallen cherry blossoms, blocking my entrance into the building. We all knew that this was a charade, a last-minute meaningless show of power by the state. The only one not in on the joke was the cocker spaniel. His retractable leash whirring behind him, he bounded up to me, excitedly sniffed my shoes and my pant legs, nuzzled my crotch with his wet, snot-encrusted nose, then obediently sat down beside me, his tail proudly pounding the ground. I've been charged with a crime so heinous that busting me for possession of marijuana on federal property would be like charging Hitler with loitering and a multinational oil company like British Petroleum with littering after 50 years of exploding refineries, toxic spills and emissions, and a shamelessly disingenuous advertising campaign. So, I clear my pipe with two loud raps on the mahogany table, brush and blow the gummy resin onto the floor, stuff the bowl with homegrown, and like a firing squad commander lighting a deserter's last cigarette, the lady cop obligingly flicks her bick and sparks me up. I refuse the blindfold and take the most glorious toke ever taken in the history of pot smoking. Call every racially profiled, abortion-denied, flag-burning Fifth Amendment taker and tell them to demand a retrial because I'm getting high in the highest court in the land. The officers stare at me in amazement. I'm the scopes monkey the missing link in the evolution of African-American jurisprudence come to life. I can hear the cocker spaniel whimpering in the corridor, pawing at the door, as I blow an A-bomb mushroom cloud-sized plume of smoke into the faces that line the giant friezes on the ceiling. Hammurabi, Moses, Solomon, these vain Spanish marble incantations of democracy and fair play. Muhammad, Napoleon, Charlemagne, and some buffed ancient Greek frat boy in a toga stand above me, casting their stony judgmental gazes down upon me. I wonder if they looked at the Scottsboro boys and Al Gore Jr. with the same disdain. Only Confucius looks chill. The sporty Chinese satin robe with the big sleeves, kung fu shoes, Shaolin Sifu beard and mustache. I hold the pipe high overhead and offer him a hit. The longest journey starts with a single puff. That longest journey shit is Lao Tzu, he says. All you motherfucking philosopher poets sound alike to me, I say. It's a trip, being the latest in the long line of landmark race-related cases. 
I suppose the constitutional scholars and cultural paleontologists will argue over my place on the historical timeline, carbon date my pipe, and determine whether I'm a direct descendant of Dred Scott, that colored conundrum who, as a slave living in a free state, was man enough for his wife and kids, man enough to sue his master for his freedom, but not man enough for the Constitution because, in the eyes of the court, he was simply property, a black biped with no rights the white man was bound to respect. They'll pore over the legal briefs and thumb through the antebellum vellum and try to determine whether or not the outcome of this case confirms or overturns Plessy versus Ferguson. They'll scour the plantations, the projects, and the Tudor suburban subdivision affirmative action palaces, digging up backyards, looking for remnants of the ghost of discrimination past in the fossilized dice and domino bones, brush the dust off the petrified rites and writs buried in bound legal volumes, and pronounce me as unforeseen hip-hop generation precedent. In the vein of Luther Luke Skywalker Campbell, the gap-toothed rapper who fought for his right to party and parody the white man the way he'd done us for years. Though if I'd been on the other side of the bench, I would have snatched the fountain pen from Chief Justice Rehnquist's hand and written the lone dissenting opinion, stating categorically that any whack rapper whose signature tune is me so horny has no rights the white man or any other b-boy worth his suede pumas was bound to respect. The smoke burns the inside of my throat. Equal justice under law, I shout to no one in particular, a testament to both the potency of the weed and my lightweight constitution. In neighborhoods like the one I grew up in, places that are poor in praxis but rich in rhetoric, the homies have a saying, I'd rather be judged by twelve than carried by six. It's a maxim, an oft-repeated rap lyric, a last-ditch rock and hard-place algorithm that on the surface is about faith in the system, but in reality means shoot first, put your trust in the public defender, and be thankful you still have your health. I'm not all that streetwise, but to my knowledge, there's no appellate court corollary. I've never heard a corner store roughneck take a sip of malt liquor and say, I'd rather be reviewed by nine than arbitrated by one. People have fought and died trying to get some of that equal justice under law advertised so blithely on the outside of this building. But innocent or guilty, most offenders never make it this far. Their courtroom appeals rarely go beyond a mother's tearful call for the good Lord's mercy or a second mortgage on Grandma's house. And if I believed in such slogans, I'd have to say I've had more than my share of justice, but I don't. When people feel the need to adorn a building or a compound with an Arbeit macht frei, a biggest little city in the world, or the happiest place on earth, it's a sign of insecurity, a contrived excuse for taking up our finite space and time. Ever been to Reno, Nevada? It's the shittiest little city in the world. And if Disneyland was indeed the happiest place on earth, you'd either keep it a secret or the price of admission would be free, and not equivalent to the yearly per capita income of a small sub-Saharan African nation like Detroit. I didn't always feel this way. Growing up, I used to think all of black America's problems could be solved if we only had a motto. 
A pithy liberté, égalité, fraternité, we could post over squeaky wrought-iron gateways, embroider onto kitchen wall hangings and ceremonial bunting. It, like the best of African-American folklore and hairstyles, would have to be simple yet profound, noble and yet somehow egalitarian, a calling card for an entire race that was raceless on the surface, but quietly understood by those in the know to be very, very black. I don't know where young boys come up with such notions, but when your friends all refer to their parents by their first names, there's the sense that something isn't quite right. And wouldn't it be nice in these times of constant conniption and crisis for broken Negro families to gather around the hearth, gaze upon the mantelpiece, and take comfort in the uplifting words inscribed on a set of lovingly handcrafted commemorative plates or limited-edition gold coins purchased from a late-night infomercial on an already-maxed-out credit card. Other ethnicities have mottos. Unconquered and unconquerable is the calling card of the Chickasaw Nation, though it doesn't apply to the casino gaming tables or having fought with Confederates in the Civil War. Allahu Akbar. Shikata Ganai. Never again. Harvard class of 96. To protect and to serve. These are more than just greetings and trite sayings. They are re-energizing codes. Linguistic chi that strengthens our life force and bonds us to other like-minded, like-skinned, like-shoe-wearing human beings. What is it that they say in the Mediterranean? Stessa faccia, stessa raza. Same face, same race. Every race has a motto. Don't believe me? You know that dark-haired guy in human resources? The one who acts white, talks white, but doesn't quite look right? Go up to him. Ask him why Mexican goalkeepers play so recklessly, or if the food at the taco truck parked outside is really safe to eat. Go ahead, ask him. Prod him. Rub the back of his flat indio skull and see if he doesn't turn around with the pronunciamiento por la raza, todo. Fuera de la raza, nada. For the race, everything. Outside the race, nothing. When I was ten, I spent a long night burrowed under my comforter, cuddled up with Funshine Bear, who, filled with a foamy, enigmatic sense of language and a Bloomian dogmatism, was the most literary of the Care Bears and my harshest critic. In the musty darkness of that rayon bat cave, his stubby, all but immobile yellow arm struggled to hold the flashlight steady, as together we tried to save the black race in eight words or less. Putting my homeschool Latin to good use, I'd crank out a motto, then shove it under his heart-shaped plastic nose for approval. My first effort, Black America, Veni, Vidi, Vici, Fried Chicken, peeled back Funshine's ears and closed his hard plastic eyes in disappointment. Semper Fi, Semper Funky, raised his polyester hackles, and when he began to paw the mattress in anger and reared up on his stubby yellow legs, bearing his ursine fangs and claws, I tried to remember what the Cub Scout manual said to do when confronted by an angry stuffed cartoon bear drunk on stolen credenza wine and editorial power. If you meet an angry bear, remain calm, speak in gentle tones, stand your ground, get large, and write in clear, simple, uplifting Latin sentences. Unum corpus, una mens, una cor, unum amor. One body, one mind, 
one heart, one love. Not bad. It had a nice license plate ring to it. I could see it in cursive, circumnavigating the rim of a race war medal of honor. Funshine didn't hate it, but from the way he wrinkled his nose right before falling asleep that night, I could tell he felt my slogan implied a certain groupthink. And weren't black people always complaining about being labeled as monolithic? I didn't ruin his dreams by telling him that black people do all think alike. They won't admit it, but every black person thinks they're better than every other black person. I never heard back from the NAACP or the Urban League, so the black credo exists only in my head, impatiently waiting on a movement, a nation, and I suppose, since nowadays branding is everything, a logo. Maybe we don't need a motto. How many times have I heard someone say, Nigga, you know me? My motto is, If I was smart, I'd put my Latin to use. Charge $10 a word. 15 if they aren't from the neighborhood or want me to translate. Don't hate the player, hate the game. If it's true that one's body is one's temple, I can make good money. Open up a little shop on the boulevard and have a long line of tattooed customers who've transformed themselves into non-denominational places of worship. Ankhs, sankofas, and crucifixes fighting for abdominal space with Aztec sun gods and one star of David galaxies. Chinese characters running down shaved calves and spinal columns. Synological shout-outs to dead loved ones that they think means rest in peace, Grandma Beverly, but in reality reads, no ticky, no bilateral trade agreement. Man, it'd be a gold mine. High as the price of cigarettes, they'd come at all hours of the night. I could sit behind a thick plexiglass window and have one of those slide-in metal drop boxes that the gas station attendants use. I'd slide out the drawer, and like prisoners passing jailhouse kites, my clientele would surreptitiously hand me their affirmations. The harder the man the neater the handwriting. The more soft-hearted the woman, the more pugnacious the phrase. You know me, they'd say. My motto is, and drop the cash in quotations from Shakespeare and Scarface, biblical passages, schoolyard aphorisms, and hoodlum truisms written in every medium from blood to eyeliner into the drawer. And whether it was scribbled on a crumpled-up bar napkin, a paper plate stained with barbecue sauce and potato salad, or was a page carefully torn from a secret diary kept since a stir in juvenile hall that, if I tell anyone about it, it'll be my ass. Ya estuvo, whatever that means. I'd take the job seriously. For these are a people for whom the phrase, well, if you put a gun to my head, isn't theoretical. And when someone has pressed a cold metal muzzle to the yin and yang symbol tattooed on your temple, and you've lived to tell about it. You don't need to have read the I Ching to appreciate the cosmic balance of the universe and the power of the tramp stamp. Because what else could your motto possibly be but what goes around comes around? Quod circumvehitur, revehitur. When business is slow, they'll come by to show me my handiwork. The old English lettering glistening in the streetlight its orthography parsed on their sweaty tank and tube-topped musculatures. Money talks, bullshit walks, pecunia sermo, somnium ambulo. 
Dative and accusative clauses burnished onto their jugulars. There's something special about having the language of science and romance surf the tidal waves of a homegirl's body fat. Strictly dickly. Austerus verba. The shaky noun declension that would ticker tape across their foreheads would be the closest most of them ever get to being white, to reading white. Crip up or grip up. Cryptum vexo vel carpo vex. It's non-essential essentialism. Blood in, blood out. Minuo in, minuo sitio. It's the satisfaction of looking at your motto in the mirror and thinking, any nigger who isn't paranoid is crazy. Ulus nigger vir quisnam es non insanus ist rabidus, is something Julius Caesar would have said if he were black. Act your age, not your shoe size. Factio vestri avum, non vestri calcius amplitudo. And if an increasingly pluralistic America ever decides to commission a new motto, I'm open for business, because I've got a better one than e pluribus unum. To dormis, to perdis. You snooze, you lose. Someone takes the pipe from my hand. Come on, man. That shit is cash. It's time to make the donuts, homie. Hampton Fisk, my lawyer and old friend, calmly wafts away the last of the pot smoke then engulfs me in an antifungal cloud of spray can air freshener. I'm too high to speak, so we greet each other with chin up, what's up knots, and share a knowing smile because we both recognize the scent. Tropic breeze. Same shit we used to hide the evidence from our parents because it smelled like angel dust. If moms came home, kicked off the espadrilles, and found the crib redolent of apple cinnamon or strawberries and cream, She'd know we'd been smoking. But if the crib smelled like PCP, then the stench could be blamed on Uncle Rick and them. Or alternatively, she could say nothing, too tired to deal with the possibility that her only child was addicted to Sherm and hope the problem would simply go away. Arguing cases in front of the Supreme Court isn't Hamp's bailiwick. He's an old-school criminal defense attorney. When you call his office, you invariably get put on hold. Not because he's busy or there's no receptionist or you've called at the same time as some other sap who saw his ad on a bus stop bench or the 800 number, 1-800-FREEDOM, scratched by paid transients onto metal holding cell mirrors and backseat police car plexiglass. It's because he likes to listen to his answering machine, a ten-minute recitation of his legal triumphs and mistrials. You have reached the Fisk Group. Any firm can list the charges. We can beat the charges. Not guilty, murder. Not guilty, DUI. Not guilty, assault of a police officer. Not guilty, sexual abuse. Not guilty, child abuse. Not guilty, elderly abuse. Dismissed, theft. Dismissed, forgery. Dismissed, domestic violence. More than 1,000 cases. Dismissed, sexual conduct with a minor. Dismissed, involving a child in drug activity. Dismissed, kidnapping. Hamp knows that only the most desperate of the accused will have the patience to sit through that litany of damn near every criminal statute in the Los Angeles County Penal Code. First in English, then in Spanish, then in Tagalog. And those are the people he likes to represent. The wretched of the earth, he calls us. People too poor to afford cable and too stupid to know that they aren't missing anything. If Jean Valjean 
had me representing him, he likes to say, then Les Miserables would have only been six pages long. Dismissed. Loaf of bread pilfery. My crimes aren't listed on the answering machine. At the arraignment in district court, right before the judge asked me to enter a plea, he read the list of felonious charges against me. Allegations that in summation accused me of everything from desecration of the homeland to conspiracy to upset the apple cart just when things were going so well. Dumbfounded, I stood before the court, trying to figure out if there was a state of being between guilty and innocent. Why were those my only alternatives, I thought. Why couldn't I be neither, or both? After a long pause, I finally faced the bench and said, Your Honor, I plead human. For this, I received an understanding snicker from the judge and a citation for contempt of court, which Hamp instantly got reduced to time served, right before making an innocent plea on my behalf and half-jokingly requesting a change of venue, suggesting Nuremberg or Salem, Massachusetts, as possible locales given the serious nature of the charges. And while he never said anything to me, my guess is that the ramifications of what he'd previously thought would be a simple case of standard, black, inner-city absurdity suddenly struck him, and he applied for admission to the Supreme Court bar the very next day. But that's old news. For now, I'm here in Washington, D.C., dangling at the end of my legal rope, stoned on memory and marijuana. My mouth bone dry and feeling like I've just woken up on the number seven bus, drunk as fuck after a long, futile night of carousing and chasing Mexican babes at Santa Monica Pier, looking out the window and coming to the slow, marijuana-impaired realization that I've missed my stop and I have no idea where I am or why everybody is looking at me. Like this woman in the court's front row, leaning over the wooden banister, her face a knotted and twisted burl of anger as she flips her long, slender, manicured, press-on-nailed middle fingers in my direction. Black women have beautiful hands, and with every fuck-you cocoa-butter stab of the air, her hands become more and more elegant. They're the hands of a poet, one of those natural-haired, brass-bangled teacher poets whose elegiac verses compares everything to jazz. Childbirth is like jazz. Muhammad Ali is like jazz. Philadelphia is like jazz. Jazz is like jazz. Everything is like jazz except for me. To her, I'm like a remixed Anglo-Saxon appropriation of black music. I'm Pat Boone in blackface, singing a watered-down version of Fats Domino's Ain't That a Shame. I'm every note of non-punk British rock and roll plucked and strummed since the Beatles hit that mind-reverberating chord that opens a hard day's night. But what about Bobby, What You Won't Do For Love, Caldwell, Jerry Mulligan, Third Base, and Janis Joplin? I want to shout back at her. What about Eric Clapton? Wait, I take that back. Fuck Eric Clapton. Ample bosoms first, she hops the rail, bogarts her way past the cops, and bolts toward me, her thumb-sucking charges clinging desperately to her, don't you see how insanely long, soft, shiny, and expensive this is, motherfucker, you will treat me like a queen, Toni Morrison, signature model Pashmina Shawl, trailing behind her like a cashmere kite tail. Now she's in my face, mumbling calmly but incoherently about black pride, the slave ships, the three-fifths claws, 
Ronald Reagan, the poll tax, the march on Washington, the myth of the drop-back quarterback, how even the white-robed horses of the Ku Klux Klan were racist, and most emphatically, how the malleable minds of the ever-increasingly redundant young black youth must be protected. And lo, the mind of the little water-headed boy with both arms wrapped about his teacher's hips, his face buried in her crotch, definitely needs a bodyguard, or at least a mental prophylactic. He comes up for air, looking expectantly to me for an explanation as to why his teacher hates me so. Not getting one, the pupil returns to the warm moistness of his happy place, oblivious to the stereotype that black males don't go down there. What could I have said to him? You know how when you play shoots and ladders and you're almost at the finish line, but you spin a six and land on that long, really curvy red slide that takes you from square 67 all the way back to number 24? Yes, sir, he'd say politely. Well, I'd say, rubbing his ball-peen hammer head, I'm that long red slide. The teacher poet slaps me hard across the face, and I know why. She, like most everyone here, wants me to feel guilty. Wants me to show some contrition, to break down in tears, to save the state some money and her the embarrassment of sharing my blackness, I, too, keep waiting for that familiar, overwhelming sense of black guilt to drop me to my knees. Knock me down, peg by meaningless, idiomatic peg, until I'm bent over in total supplication to America, tearfully confessing my sins against color and country, begging my proud black history for forgiveness. But there's nothing. Only the buzz of the air conditioner and my high. And as security escorts her back to her seat, the little boy trailing behind her, holding on to her scarf for dear life, the sting in my cheek that she hopes will smart in perpetuity has already faded. And I find myself unable to conjure up a single guilty pang. That's the bitch of it. To be on trial for my life, and for the first time ever not feel guilty. That omnipresent guilt that's as black as fast food apple pie and Prison basketball is finally gone, and it feels almost white to be unburdened from the racial shame that makes a bespectacled college freshman dread fried chicken Fridays at the dining hall. I was the diversity the school trumpeted so loudly in its glossy literature. But there wasn't enough financial aid in the world to get me to suck the gristle from a leg bone in front of the entire freshman class. I'm no longer party to that collective guilt that keeps the third chair cellist, the administrative secretary, the stock clerk, the not-really-all-that-attractive-but-she's-black beauty pageant winner from showing up for work Monday morning and shooting every white motherfucker in the place. It's a guilt that has obligated me to mutter, my bad, for every misplaced bounce pass, politician under federal investigation, every bug-eyed and rostous voice comedian, and every black film made since 1968. But I don't feel responsible anymore. I understand now that the only time black people don't feel guilty is when we've actually done something wrong, because that relieves us of the cognitive dissonance of being black and innocent, and in a way, the prospect of going to jail becomes a relief. In the way that cooning is a relief, voting Republican is a relief, marrying white is a relief, albeit a temporary one. 
uncomfortable with being so comfortable, I make one last attempt to be at one with my people. I close my eyes, place my head on the table, and bury my broad nose in the crook of my arm. I focus on my breathing, shutting out the flags and the fanfare, and call through my vast repository of daydream blackness until I dredge up the scratchy archival footage of the civil rights struggle. Handling it carefully by its sensitive edges, I remove it from its sacred canister, thread it through metal sprockets and psychological gates, and pass the bulb in my head that flickers with the occasional decent idea. I flip on the projector. There's no need to focus. Human carnage is always filmed and remembered in the highest definition. The images are crystal clear, permanently burned into our memories in plasma television screens. That incessant Black History Month loop of barking dogs, gushing fire hoses, and carbuncles oozing blood through $2 haircuts, colorless blood spilling down faces shiny with sweat in the light of the evening news. These are the pictures that form our collective 16-millimeter superego. But today, I'm all medulla oblongata, and I can't concentrate. The film inside my head begins to skip and sputter. The sound cuts out, and protesters falling like dominoes in Selma, Alabama, begin to look like Keystone Negroes, slipping en masse on an affirmative action banana peel and tumbling to the street. A tangled mess of legs and dreams akimbo. The marchers on Washington become civil rights zombies, 100,000 strong, somnambulating lockstep onto the mall, stretching out their stiff, needy fingers for their pound of flesh. The head zombie looks exhausted from being raised from the dead every time someone wants to make a point about what black people should and shouldn't do, can and cannot have. He doesn't know the mic is on, and under his breath he confesses that if he'd only tasted that unsweetened swill that passed for iced tea at the segregated lunch counters in the South, he would have called the whole civil rights thing off. Before the boycotts, the beatings, and the killings, he places a can of diet soda on the podium. Things go better with Coke, he says. It's the real thing. Still, I don't feel guilty. If I'm indeed moving backward and dragging all of black America down with me, I couldn't care less. Is it my fault that the only tangible benefit to come out of the civil rights movement is that black people aren't as afraid of dogs as they used to be? No, it isn't. The marshal of the court rises, pounds her gavel, and begins to encant the court's invocation. The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Hampton lifts me shakily to my feet, and we, along with all those in attendance, rise in ministerial solemnity as the justices enter the courtroom, trying their level best to look impartial. With their Eisenhower-era hairstyles and another-day-another-dollar blank workaday expressions, too bad it's impossible not to come off as pompous when you're wearing a silk black robe and the Negro Justice has absentmindedly forgotten to take off his $50,000 platinum Rolex. I suppose if I had better job security than Father Time, I'd be smug as a motherfucker too. Oye, oye, oye! At this point, after five years of endless decisions, reversals, appeals, postponements, and pretrial hearings, 
I don't even know if I'm the plaintiff or the defendant. All I know is that the sour-faced justice with the post-racial chronometer won't stop looking at me. His beady eyes fixed in this unblinking and unforgiving stare. He's angry that I've fucked up his political expediency. Blown up his spot like a little kid visiting the city zoo for the first time and frustrated at having walked past cage after seemingly empty reptile cage, finally stops at an enclosure and shouts, There he is! There he is. Camellio Africanus Tokenus, hidden way in the back among all the shrubbery. His slimy feet gripped tightly around the judicial branch in a cool torpor, silently gnawing on the leaves of injustice. Out of sight, out of mind, is the black working man's motto. But now the entire country can see this one. Our collective noses press to the glass in amazement that he's been able to camouflage his Alabama jet-black ass against the red, white, and blue of the American flag for so long. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Hemp needs my shoulder, a reminder not to sweat the nappy-headed magistrate or the public for which he stands. This is the Supreme Court, not the People's Court. I don't have to do anything. I don't need copies of dry cleaner receipts, police reports, or a photograph of a dented bumper. Here the lawyers argue, the judges question, and I get to simply kick back and enjoy my high. The Chief Justice enters the case. His dispassionate Midwestern demeanor goes a long way toward easing the tension in the room. We'll hear argument first this morning in case 092606. He pauses, rubs his eyes, then composes himself. In case 092606, me versus the United States of America. There's no outburst. Only giggling and eye-rolling accompanied by some loud, who this motherfucker think he is, teeth-sucking. I admit it. Me versus the United States sounds a little self-aggrandizing, but what can I say? I'm me. Literally. A not-so-proud descendant of the Kentucky Mees, one of the first black families to settle in southwest Los Angeles, I can trace my roots all the way back to that first vessel to escape state-sanctioned Southern repression, the Greyhound bus. But when I was born, my father, in the twisted tradition of Jewish entertainers who changed their names and the uptight, underachieving black men who envy them, decided to truncate the family name, dropping that last unwieldy E, like Jack Benny dropped Benjamin Kubelski, Kirk Douglas, Danielovich, like Jerry Lewis dropped Dean Martin, Max Bayer dropped Schmeling, third base dropped science, and Sammy Davis Jr. dropped Judaism altogether. He wasn't going to let that extra vowel hold me back like it did him. Pops liked to say that he didn't anglicize or Africanize my surname, but actualized it, that I was born having reached my full potential and could skip Maslow, third grade, and Jesus. Knowing that the ugliest movie stars, the whitest rappers, and the dumbest intellectuals are often the most respected members of their chosen profession, Hamp, the defense lawyer who looks like a criminal, 
confidently sets his toothpick on the lectern, runs his tongue over a gold-capped incisor, and straightens his suit, a baby-tooth-white, caftan-baggy, double-breasted ensemble that hangs on his bony frame like an empty hot air balloon, and depending on your taste in music, either matches or clashes with his asp-black Cleopatra chemical perm and the first-round Mike Tyson knockout darkness of his skin. I half expect him to address the court with, Fellow pimps and pimpettes, you may have heard that my client is dishonest, but that's easy for them to say, because my client is a crook. In an age where social activists have television shows and millions of dollars, there aren't many left like Hampton Fisk, those pro bono assholes who believe in the system and in the Constitution, but who can see the gap between reality and rhetoric. And while I don't really know if he truly believes in me or not, I know that when he starts to defend the indefensible, it won't make a difference. Because he's a man whose business card motto is, For the poor, every day is casual Friday. Fisk has barely uttered, May it please the court, when the black justice moves almost imperceptibly forward in his seat. No one would have noticed, but a squeaky wheel on his swivel chair gave him away. And with each referral to some obscure section of the Civil Rights Act or precedent-setting case, the justice shifts impatiently, causing his chair to squeak louder and louder with each transfer of his restless body weight from one flabby, diabetic butt cheek to the other. You can assimilate the man, but not the blood pressure. And the vein pulsating angrily down the middle of his forehead gives him away. He's giving me that crazy, red-eyed, penetrating look that back home we call the Willowbrook Avenue stare. Willowbrook Avenue being the four-lane River Styx that in 1960s Dickens separated white neighborhoods from black, but now, post-white, post-anybody-with-two-nickels-to-rub-together flight, hell lies on both sides of the street. The riverbanks are dangerous, and while standing at the crosswalk waiting for the light to change, your life can change. Some drive-by homie representing some color, click, or any of the five stages of grief can stick his gauge out the passenger side window of a two-tone coupe, give you the Negro Supreme Court justice glare, and ask, where you from, foe? The correct answer, of course, is nowhere. But sometimes they don't hear you over the loud, sputtering, unmuffled engine, the contentious confirmation hearing, the liberal media's questioning of your credentials, the conniving black bitch accusing you of sexual harassment. Sometimes nowhere just isn't a good enough answer. Not because they don't believe you, because everybody's from somewhere, but because they don't want to believe you. And now, having lost his veneer of patrician civility, this screw-faced magistrate, Sitting in his high-backed swivel chair is no different from the gangbanger cruising up and down Willowbrook Avenue, calling and sitting shotgun because he has one. And for the first time in his long tenure on the Supreme Court, the black justice has a question. He's never interjected before, so he doesn't quite know how. Looking to the Italian justice for permission, he slowly raises his puffy, cigar-fingered hand in the air, but too infuriated to wait for approval, he blurts out, Nigga, are you crazy? In a voice surprisingly high-pitched for a black man his size. Now void of objectivity and equanimity, his ham-sized fists, 
pound the bench so hard at the fancy giant gold-plated clock suspended from the ceiling above the chief justice's head begins to pendulum back and forth. The black justice moves in too close to his microphone, yelling into it, because although I'm seated only a few feet away from the bench, our differences are light years apart. He's demanding to know how it is that in this day and age a black man can violate the hallowed principles of the 13th Amendment by owning a slave. How could I willfully ignore the 14th Amendment and argue that sometimes segregation brings people together? Like all people who believe in the system, he wants answers. He wants to believe that Shakespeare wrote all those books, that Lincoln fought the Civil War to free the slaves, and the United States fought World War II to rescue the Jews and keep the world safe for democracy, that Jesus and the double feature are coming back. But I'm no Panglossian American, and when I did what I did, I wasn't thinking about inalienable rights, the proud history of our people. I did what worked. And since when did a little slavery and segregation ever hurt anybody? And if so, so fucking be it. Sometimes, when you're high as I am, the line between thought and speech blurs, and judging by the way the black justice is frothing at the mouth, I've said that last bit out loud. So fucking be it. He stands up like he wants to fight. A wad of spit hawked from the deepest regions of his Yale Law School education chambered on the tip of his tongue. The Chief Justice calls out his name, and the Black Justice catches himself and plops back into his chair, swallowing his saliva, if not his pride. Racial segregation? Slavery? Why, you bitch-made motherfucker, I know goddamn well your parents raised you better than that. So let's get this hanging party started. The Shit You Shovel Chapter One I suppose that's exactly the problem. I wasn't raised to know any better. My father was Carl Jung, rest his soul, a social scientist of some renown. As the founder and, to my knowledge, sole practitioner of the field of liberation psychology, He'd like to walk around the house, a.k.a. the Skinner box, in a laboratory coat, where I, his gangly, absent-minded black lab rat, was homeschooled in strict accordance with Piaget's theory of cognitive development. I wasn't fed. I was presented with lukewarm, appetitive stimuli. I wasn't punished, but broken of my unconditioned reflexes. I wasn't loved, but brought up in an atmosphere of calculated intimacy and intense levels of commitment. We lived in Dickens, a ghetto community on the southern outskirts of Los Angeles, and as odd as it might sound, I grew up on a farm in the inner city. Founded in 1868, Dickens, like most California towns except for Irvine, which was established as a breeding ground for stupid, fat, ugly white Republicans and the Chihuahuas and East Asian refugees who love them, started out as an agrarian community. The city's original charter stipulated that Dickens shall remain free of Chinamen, Spanish of all shades, dialects, and hats, Frenchmen, redheads, city slickers, and unskilled Jews. However, the founders, in their somewhat limited wisdom, also provided that the 500 acres bordering the canal be forever zoned for something referred to as residential agriculture. 
And thus, my neighborhood, a ten-square-block section of Dickens, unofficially known as the Farms, was born. You know when you've entered the farms, because the city sidewalks, along with your rims, car stereo, nerve, and progressive voting record, will have vanished into air thick with the smell of cow manure, and if the wind is blowing the right direction, good weed. Grown men slowly pedal dirt bikes and fixies through streets clogged with gaggles of conveys of every type of farm bird, from chickens to peacocks. They ride by with no hands, counting small stacks of bills, Looking up just long enough to raise an inquisitive eyebrow and mouth, What's up, Cuvo? Wagon wheels nailed to front yard trees and fences lend the ranch-style houses a touch of pioneer authenticity that belies the fact that every window, entryway, and doggy door has more bars on it and padlocks than a prison commissary. Front porch senior citizens and Eight-year-olds who've already seen it all sit on rickety lawn chairs, whittling with switchblades, waiting for something to happen, as it always did. For the twenty years I knew him, Dad had been the interim dean of the Department of Psychology at West Riverside Community College. For him, having grown up as a stable manager's son on a small horse ranch in Lexington, Kentucky, farming was nostalgic. And when he came out west with a teaching position... The opportunity to live in a black community and breed horses was too good to pass up, even if he'd never really been able to afford the mortgage and the upkeep. Maybe if he'd been a comparative psychologist, some of the horses and cows would have lived past the age of three, and the tomatoes would have had fewer worms. But in his heart, he was more interested in black liberty than in pest management and the well-being of the animal kingdom. In his quest to unlock the keys to mental freedom, I was his Anna Freud, his little case study. And when he wasn't teaching me how to ride, he was replicating famous social science experiments with me as both the control and the experimental group. Like any primitive Negro child lucky enough to reach the formal operational stage, I've come to realize that I had a shitty upbringing that I'll never be able to live down. I suppose if one takes into account the lack of an ethics committee to oversee my dad's child-rearing methodologies, the experiment started innocently enough. In the early part of the 20th century, the behaviorists Watson and Rayner, in an attempt to prove that fear was a learned behavior, exposed nine-month-old little Albert to neutral stimuli like white rats, monkeys, and sheaves of burned newsprint. Initially, the baby test subject was unperturbed by the series of simians, rodents, and flames. But after Watson repeatedly paired the rats with unconscionably loud noises, over time, little Albert developed a fear not only of white rats, but of all things furry. When I was seven months, Pops placed objects like toy police cars, cold cans of Pap's Blue Ribbon, Richard Nixon campaign buttons, and a copy of The Economist in my bassinet. But instead of conditioning me with a deafening clang, I learned to be afraid of the presented stimuli because they were accompanied by him taking out the family 38 special and firing several window-rattling rounds into the ceiling while shouting, Nigga, go back to Africa! Loud enough to make himself heard over the quadraphonic console stereo blasting Sweet Home Alabama in the living room. To this day, I've never been able to sit through even the most mundane TV crime drama, I have a strange affinity for Neil Young, and whenever I have trouble sleeping, 
I don't listen to recorded rainstorms or crashing waves, but to the Watergate tapes. Family lore has it that from ages one to four, he'd tied my right hand behind my back so I'd grow up to be left-handed, right-brained, and well-centered. I was eight when my father wanted to test the bystander effect as it applies to the black community. He replicated the infamous Kitty Genovese case, with a prepubescent me standing in for the ill-fated Miss Genovese, who in 1964 was robbed, raped, and stabbed to death in the apathetic streets of New York. Her plaintive Psychology 101 textbook cries for help, ignored by dozens of onlookers and neighborhood residents. Hence the bystander effect. The more people around to provide help, the less likely one is to receive help. Dad hypothesized that this didn't apply to black people, a loving race whose very survival has been dependent on helping one another in times of need. So he made me stand on the busiest intersection in the neighborhood, dollar bills bursting from my pockets, the latest and shiniest electronic gadgetry jammed into my ear canals, a hip-hop heavy gold chain hanging from my neck, and inexplicably, a set of custom-made carpeted Honda Civic floor mats draped over my forearm like a waiter's towel. And as tears streamed from my eyes, my own father mugged me. He beat me down in front of a throng of bystanders who didn't stand by for long. The mugging wasn't two punches to the face old when the people came, not to my aid, but to my father's, assisting him in my ass-kicking. They happily joined in with flying elbows and television wrestling throws. One woman put me in a well-executed and, in retrospect, merciful rear-naked chokehold. When I regained consciousness to see my father surveying her and the rest of my attackers, their faces still sweaty and chests still heaving from the efforts of their altruism, I imagined that, like mine, their ears were still ringing with my high-pitched screams and their frenzied laughter. How satisfied were you with your act of selflessness? Not at all. Somewhat satisfied. Very satisfied. Rate on a scale one to five. On the way home, Pops put a consoling arm around my aching shoulders and delivered an apologetic lecture about his failure to take into account the bandwagon effect. Then there was the time he wanted to test servility and obedience in the hip-hop generation. I must have been about ten when my father sat me down in front of a mirror, pulled a Ronald Reagan Halloween mask over his head, pinned a defunct pair of Transworld Airlines captain wings to his lab coat, and proclaimed himself a white authority figure. The nigger in the mirror is a stupid nigger, he explained to me in that screechy, cloying, white voice comedians of color use while attaching a set of electrodes to my temples. The wires led to a sinister-looking console filled with buttons, dials, and old-fashioned voltage gauges. You will ask the boy in the mirror a series of questions about his supposed nigger history from the sheet on the table. If he gets the question wrong or fails to answer in ten seconds, you will press the red button, delivering an electric shock that will increase in intensity with each wrong answer. I knew better than to beg for mercy. For mercy would be a rant about getting what I deserved for reading the one comic book I ever owned. Batman, number 203. Spectacular Secrets of the Batcave Revealed. 
A moldy, dog-eared back issue someone had thrown into the farmyard and I brought inside and nursed back to readability like a wounded piece of literature. It was the first thing I had ever read from the outside world, and when I whipped it out during a break in my homeschooling, my father confiscated it. From then on, whenever I didn't know something or had a bad day in the neighborhood, he'd wave the comic's half-torn cover in my face. See, if you weren't wasting your life reading this bullshit, you'd realize Batman ain't coming to save your ass or your people. I read the first question. Prior to declaring independence in 1957, the West African nation of Ghana was comprised of what two colonies? I didn't know the answer. I cocked my ears for the roar of the rocket-propelled Batmobile screeching around the corner, but could only hear my father's stopwatch ticking down the seconds. I gritted my teeth, placed my finger over the red button, and waited for the time limit to expire. The answer is Togoland and the Gold Coast. Obediently, as my father predicted, I pressed the button. The needles on the dial and my spine both straightened while I watched myself in the mirror jitterbug violently for a second or two. Jesus, how many volts was that? I asked, my hands shaking uncontrollably. The subject will ask only the questions that are listed on the sheet, my dad said coldly, reaching past me to turn a black dial a few clicks to the right so that the indicator now rested on triple X. Now, please read the next question. I began to suffer from a blurring of vision I suspected was psychosomatic, but nonetheless everything was as out of focus as a five-dollar bootleg video on a swap meet flat screen, and to read the next question, I had to hold the quivering paper to my nose. Of the 23,000 eighth-grade students who took the entrance exam for admission into Stuyvesant High, New York's most elite public high school, how many African Americans scored high enough to qualify for admission? When I finished reading, my nose began to bleed, red droplets of blood trickling from my left nostril and plopping onto the table in perfect one-second intervals. Eschewing his stopwatch, my father started the countdown. I glanced suspiciously at him. The question was too topical. Obviously, he'd been reading the New York Times at breakfast, prepping for the day's experiment by looking for racial fodder over a bowl of Rice Krispies, flipping from page to page with a speed and rage that caused the paper's sharp corners to snap, crackle, and pop in the morning air. What would Batman do if he rushed into the kitchen right then and saw a father electrocuting his son for the good of science? Why, he'd open up his utility belt and bust out some of those tear gas pellets. And while my dad was choking on the fumes, he'd finish asphyxiating him, assuming there was enough bat rope to tie around his fat-ass hot dog neck. Then he'd burn out his eyeballs with the laser torch, use the miniature camera to take some pictures for bat posterity, then steal Pop's classic, only-driven-on-trips-to-white-neighborhood sky-blue Carmen Ghia convertible with the skeleton keys, and we'd bone the fuck out. That's what Batman would have done. But me, cowardly bat-fag that I was, and still am, I could only think to question the question's shoddy methodology, 
For instance, how many black students had taken the admissions test? What was the average class size at this Stuyvesant High? But this time, before the tenth drop of blood had landed on the table, and before my father could blurt out the answer, seven, I pressed the red button, self-administering a nerve-shattering, growth-stunting electric shock of a voltage that would have frightened Thor and lobotomized an already sedated, educated class, because now I, too, was curious. I wanted to see what happens when you bequeath a ten-year-old black boy to science. What I discovered was that the phrase evacuate one's bowels is a misnomer, because the opposite was true. My bowels evacuated me. It was a feces retreat comparable to the great evacuations of history. Dunkirk, Saigon, New Orleans. But unlike the Brits, the Vietnamese capitalists, and flooded-out residents of the Ninth Ward, the occupants of my intestinal tract had nowhere to go. What runny parts of that fetid, tidal wave of shit and urine that didn't encamp itself about my buttocks and balls ran down my legs and pooled in and around my sneakers. Not wanting to hinder the integrity of his experiment, my father simply pinched his nose shut and motioned for me to proceed. Thank goodness I knew the answer to the third question. How many chambers are in the Wu-Tang? Because if I hadn't, my brain would be the ash-gray color and consistency of a barbecue briquette on the 5th of July. My crash course in childhood development ended two years later, when Dad tried to replicate doctors Kenneth and Mamie Clark's study of color consciousness in black children using white and black dolls. My father's version, of course, was a little more revolutionary, a tad more modern. While the Clark sat two cherubic, life-size, saddle-shoe-shod dolls, one white and one colored, in front of schoolchildren, and asked them to choose the one they preferred, my father placed two elaborate dollscapes in front of me and asked me, With whom, with what social-cultural subtext are you down with, son? Dollscape 1 featured Ken and Malibu Barbie dressed in matching bathing suits, appropriately snorkeled and goggled, cooling by the dreamhouse pool. In Dollscape 2, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Harriet Tubman, and a brown-skinned, egg-shaped weeble toy were running and wobbling through a swampy thicket from a pack of plastic German shepherds, leading an armed lynch party comprised of my G.I. Joes hooded in Ku Klux Klan sheets. What's that? I asked, pointing to a small white Christmas ornament that spun slowly over the bog, glittering and sparkling like a disco ball in the afternoon sun. That's the North Star. They're running toward the North Star, toward freedom. I picked up Martin, Malcolm, and Harriet, teasing my dad by asking, What are these in-action figures? Martin Luther King Jr. looked okay, stylishly dressed in a glossy, black, tight-fitting suit, a copy of Gandhi's autobiography glued to one hand and a microphone in the other. Malcolm was similarly outfitted, but was bespectacled, and holding a burning Molotov cocktail that was slowly melting his hand. The smiling, racially ambiguous Weeble, which looked suspiciously like a boyhood version of my father, stayed true to its advertising slogan by wobbling and never falling down, whether balanced precariously in the palm of my hand 
or chased by the knights of white supremacy. There was something wrong with Miss Tubman, though. She was outfitted in a form-fitting burlap sack, and I don't remember any of my history primers describing the woman known as Moses as being statuesque with a 36-24-36 hourglass figure, long silky hair, plucked eyebrows, blue eyes, dick-sucking lips, and pointy titties. Dad, you painted Barbie black? I wanted to maintain the beauty threshold, establish a baseline of cuteness so that you couldn't say one doll was prettier than the other. Plantation Barbie had a string coming out of her back. I pulled it. Math is hard. Let's go shopping, she said in a squeaky sing-song voice. I set the black heroes back down in the kitchen table swamp, moving their limbs so that they resumed their runaway poses. I'm down with Ken and Barbie. My father lost his scientific objectivity and grabbed me by the shirt. What? Why? he yelled. Because the white people got better accessories. I mean, look, Harriet Tubman has a gas lantern, a walking stick, and a compass. Ken and Barbie have a dune buggy and speedboat. It's really no contest. The next day, my father burned his findings in the fireplace. Even at the junior college level, it's publish or perish. But more than the fact he'd never get a parking space with his name on it or a reduced course load, I was a failed social experiment, a statistically insignificant son who'd shattered his hopes for both me and the black race. He made me turn in my dream book, stop calling my allowance positive reinforcement, and began referring to it as restitution. While he never stopped pushing the book learning, it wasn't long after this that he bought my first spade, pitchfork, and sheep-shearing razor, sending me into the fields with a pat on the tush and Booker T. Washington's famous, quote, pins to my denim overalls for encouragement. Cast down your bucket where you are. If there is a heaven worth the effort that people make to get there, then I hope for my father's sake there's a celestial psychology journal one that publishes the results of failed experiments, because acknowledging unsubstantiated theories and negative results is just as important as publishing studies proving red wine is the cure-all we'd always pretended it was. My memories of my father aren't all bad. Though technically I was an only child, Daddy, like many black men, had lots of kids. The citizens of Dickens were his progeny. While he wasn't very good with horses... He was known around town as the nigger whisperer. Whenever some nigger who'd done lost a motherfucking mind needed to be talked down from a tree or freeway overpass precipice, the call would go out. My father would grab his social psychology Bible, The Planning of Change, by Bennis, Benet, and Robert Chin, a woefully underappreciated Chinese-American psychologist my dad had never met but claimed as his mentor. Most kids got bedtime stories and fairy tales. I had to fall asleep to readings from chapters with titles like The Utility of Models of the Environments of Systems for Practitioners. My father was nothing if not a practitioner. I can't remember a time when he didn't bring me along on a nigger whisper. On the drive over, he'd brag that the black community was a lot like him, 
ABD. All but dissertation? All but defeated. When we arrived, he'd sit me on the roof of a nearby minivan or stand me atop an alleyway dumpster, hand me a legal pad, and tell me to take notes. Among all the flashing sirens, the crying and broken glass crunching softly under his buckskin shoes, I'd be so scared for him. But Daddy had a way of approaching the unapproachable, his face sympathetic and sullen. Palms turned up like a dashboard Jesus figurine, he'd walk toward some knife-wielding lunatic whose pupils were dilated to the size of Adam smashed by a quart of Hennessy XO and a 12-pack light beer chaser. Ignoring the blood-stained work uniform caked in brain and fecal matter, he'd hug the person like he was greeting an old friend. People thought it was his selflessness that allowed him to get so close, but to me, it was his voice that got him over. Doo-wop bass deep, my father spoke in F-sharp, a resonant, low-pitched tone that rooted you in place like a bobby-socked teenager listening to the five satins sing in the still of the night. It's not music that soothes the savage beast, but the systematic desensitization. And father's voice had a way of relaxing the enraged and allowing them to confront their fears anxiety-free. When I was in grade school, I knew from how the taste of the pomegranates would bring you to tears, from the way the summer sun turned our afros blood orange red, and from how giddy my father would get whenever he talked about Dodger Stadium, White Zinfandel, and the latest green flash sunset he'd seen from the summit of Mount Wilson at California was a special place. And if you think about it, pretty much everything that made the 20th century bearable was invented in a California garage. The Apple computer, the boogie board, and gangster rap. Thanks to my dad's career in nigger whispering, I was there for the birth of the latter, when at six o'clock on a cold, dark ghetto morning, two blocks down from where I live, Carl Kilo G. Garfield, hallucinating high on his own supply and Alfred Lloyd Tennyson's brooding lyricism, burst out of his garage squinting into his moleskin, a smoldering crack pipe dangling from fingertips. It was the height of the crack rock era. I was about 10 when he clambered into the bed of his tricked out hot rod yellow Toyota pickup truck. The T.O. and the T.A. buffed out and painted over so that the brand name on the tailgate read just Yo and began reciting his verse at the top of his lungs. The slurred iambic pentameter punctuated with gun claps from his nickel-plated 38 and pleas from his mama to take his naked ass inside. The charge of the light-skinned spade. Half a liter, half a liter, half a liter onward. All in the alley of death rode the old English 800. Forward, the light-skinned spade. Charge for the bloods, he said. Into the alley of death rode the old English 800. When the SWAT team finally arrived on the scene, taking cover behind patrol car doors and the sycamore trees, clutching their assault rifles to their chests, none of them could stop giggling long enough to take the kill shot. There's not to reason what the fuck. There's but to shoot and duck. Niggas to the right of them. Niggas to the left of them. Niggas in front of them. Partied and blundered. Bum-rushed at Caps and Hollow Point Shell, while Hoopty and Hoodlum fell.
they that had banged so well came through the jaws of death back from the holes of hell. All that was left of them, left of the old English 800. And when my father, the nigger whisperer, that beatific smile splashed across his face, eased his way past the police barricade, put a tweed-jacketed arm around the broken-down drug dealer and spoke some whispered profundity into his ear. Kilo G blinked blankly, like a stage show volunteer struck dumb by an Indian casino hypnotist, then calmly handed over his gun and the keys to his heart. The police closed in for the arrest, but my father asked them to stay back, beckoning Kilo to finish his poem, even joining in at the end of each line, pretending he knew the words. When can their shine and buzz fade? Oh, the buckwild charge they made. All the motherfucking world wondered. Respect the charge they made. Respect the charge of the light-skinned spade. The noble, now empty, old English 800. The police vans and cruisers disappeared into the morning haze, leaving my father godlike, alone in the middle of the street, reveling in his humanitarianism. Cockily, he turned toward me. You know what I said to get that psychotic motherfucker to lower his gun? What did you say, Daddy? I said, brother, you have to ask yourself two questions. Who am I? And how may I become myself? That's basic person-centered therapeutics. You want the client to feel important, to feel that he or she is in control of the healing process. Remember that shit. This is disc number two. I wanted to ask him why he never spoke to me in the same reassuring tone that he used with his clients. But I knew instead of an answer, I'd get the belt, and my healing process would involve mercurochrome, and in place of being grounded, a sentence of five to no less than three weeks of Jungian active imagination. In the distance, hurtling away from me like some distant spiral galaxy, the red and blue sirens spun silently but brilliantly, lighting up the mist of the morning marine layer like some inner-city aurora borealis. I fingered a bullet hole in the tree bark, thinking that like the slug buried ten rings deep in the trunk, I'd never leave this neighborhood. That I'd go to the local high school, graduate in the middle of my class, another willy lump lump with a six-line resume rife with spelling errors, trekking back and forth between the job center, the strip club parking lot, and the civil service exam tutorials. I'd marry, fuck, and kill Marpessa Delissa Dawson, the bitch next door, and my one and only love. Have kids, threaten them with military school and promises not to bail them out if they ever got arrested. I'd be the type of nigger who played pool at the titty bar and cheated on his wife with the blonde cheese girl from the Trader Joe's on National and Westwood Boulevards. I'd stop pestering my father about my missing mother, finally admitting to myself that motherhood, like the artistic trilogy, is overrated. After a lifetime of beating myself up for never having been breastfed or finishing The Lord of the Rings, Paradise, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Eventually, like all lower-middle-class Californians, 
I'd die in the same bedroom I'd grown up in, looking up at the cracks in the stucco ceiling that have been there since the 68 quake. So introspective questions like, who am I and how can I be that person, didn't pertain to me then because I already knew the answer. Like the entire town of Dickens, I was my father's child, a product of my environment and nothing more. Dickens was me, and I was my father. Problem is, they both disappeared from my life. First my dad, and then my hometown, and suddenly I had no idea who I was and no clue how to become myself. Chapter 2 West Side, nigga, what? Chapter 3 The three basic laws of ghetto physics are niggas in your face tend to stay in your face. No matter where the sun is in the sky, the time is always half past a monkey's ass and a quarter to his balls. And the third is that whenever someone you love has been shot, Invariably, you will be back home on winter break, halfway through your junior year of college, taking the horse on a little afternoon ride to rendezvous with your father for a meeting of the Dum Dum Donut Intellectuals, the local think tank, where he and the rest of the neighborhood savants will ply you with cider, cinnamon rolls, and conversion therapy. Not that your dad thinks that you're gay, but... He's worried that you never stay out past 11 and the word booty doesn't seem to be in your vocabulary. It's a cold night. You're minding your own business, savoring the last of your vanilla shake, when you come upon a drove of detectives huddled around the body. You dismount, step closer, and recognize a shoe or a shirt sleeve or a piece of jewelry. My father was face down in the intersection. I recognized him by his fists cocked and knuckled up tight, the veins on the back of his hands still bulging and full. I compromised the crime scene by picking lint off his matted afro, straightening the rumpled collar of his Oxford shirt, brushing the pebbles of gravel from his cheek, and according to the police report, most egregiously by sticking my hand in the blood pooled around his body, which, to my surprise, was cold, not hot, roiling with the black anger and lifelong frustration of a decent, albeit slightly crazy, man who never became what he thought he was. You the son? The detective looked me up and down, his brow wrinkled, his eyes flicking back and forth from identifying feature to identifying feature. Behind the dismissive smirk, I could almost see his brain cross-referencing my scars, height, and build with some database of wanted felons filed inside his head. Yes, I am. You, something special. Huh? The officers involved said that when he charged them, he shouted, and I quote, I'm warning you. You anal retentive authoritarian archetypes. You don't know who my son is. So you someone special? Who am I? And how can I be that person? No, I'm no one special. You're supposed to cry when your dad dies. Curse the system because your father has died at the hands of the police. Bemoan being lower middle class and colored 
in a police state that protects only rich white people and movie stars of all races, though I can't think of any Asian-American ones. But I didn't cry. I thought his death was a trick, another one of his elaborate schemes to educate me on the plight of the black race and to inspire me to make something of myself. I half expected him to get up, brush himself off, and say, See, nigger, if this could happen to the world's smartest black man, just imagine what could happen to your dumb ass. Just because racism is dead don't mean they still don't shoot niggers on sight. Now, if I had my druthers, I couldn't care less about being black. To this day, when the census form arrives in the mail under the race question, I check the box marked some other race and proudly write in Californian. Of course, two months later, a census worker shows up at my door, takes one look at me, and says, You foul, nigger. As a black man, what do you have to say for yourself? And as a black man, I never have anything to say for myself. Hence the need for a motto, which, if we had, I'd raise my fist, shout it out, and slam the door in the government's face. But we don't. So I mumbled sorry and scribbled my initials next to the box marked Black African American Negro Coward. No. What little inspiration I have in life comes not from any sense of racial pride. It stems from the same age-old yearning that has produced great presidents and great pretenders, birthed captains of industry and captains of football. That edible yen that makes men do all sorts of shit we'd rather not do. Like try out for basketball and fist fight the kid next door because in this family, we don't start shit, but we damn sure finish it. I speak only of that most basic of needs, the child's needs to please the father. Many fathers foster that need in their children through a wanton manipulation that starts in infancy. They dote on the kids with airplane spins, ice cream cones on cold days, and weekend custody trips to the Salton Sea and the Science Museum. The incessant magic tricks that produced dollar pieces out of thin air and the open-house mind games that made you think that the view from the second-floor Tudor-style miracle in the hills, if not the world, would soon be yours are designed to fool us into believing that without daddies and the fatherly guidance they provide, the rest of our lives will be futile, Mickey Mouseless, I told you so existences. But later in adolescence, after one too many accidental driveway basketball elbows, drunken midnight slaps to the upside of our heads, puffs of crystal meth exhaled in our faces, jalapeno peppers snapped in half and ground into our lips for saying fuck when you were only trying to be like daddy, you come to realize that the frozen niceties and trips to the drive through car wash were bait-and-switch parenting. Ploys and cover-ups for their reduced sex drives, stagnant take-home pay, and their own inabilities to live up to their father's expectations. The Oedipal Yen to please father is so powerful that it holds sway even in a neighborhood like mine, where fatherhood, for the most part, happens in absentia. Yet nevertheless, the kids sit dutifully by the window at night, waiting for Daddy to come home. Of course, my problem was that Daddy was always home. After all the evidence photos had been taken, the witnesses interviewed and macabre homicide jokes cracked. Without dropping my shake, I lifted my father's bullet-riddled body up by the underarms and dragged his heels through the chalk outline, through the yellow-numbered shell-casing markers, through the intersection 
the parking lot, and the glass double doors. I sat my father down at his favorite table, ordered his usual, two chocolate frosteds and a large milk, and placed it in front of him. Since he had arrived 35 minutes late and dead, the meeting was already in progress, chaired by Foy Cheshire, fading TV personality, erstwhile friend of my father, and a man all too anxious to fill the void in leadership. There was a brief moment of awkwardness, the skeptical dum-dums looking at the heavyset Foy like the nation must have looked to Andrew Johnson after Lincoln had been assassinated. I loudly slurped up the dregs of my shake, the signal to carry on, because that's the way my father would have wanted it. The dum-dum donut revolution must go on. My father founded the dum-dum donut intellectuals way back when, when he noticed that the local Dum Dum Donuts franchise was the only non-Latino or black-owned business that wasn't burned and pillaged in the riots. In fact, looters, police officers, and firemen alike used the 24-hour drive through window to fuel up on crullers, cinnamon twists, and the surprisingly good lemonade as they fought off the conflagration, the fatigue, and the pesky news crews who asked anyone within arm's length of a microphone do you think the riots will change anything? Well, I'm on TV, ain't I, bitch? In all its years of existence, Dum Dum Donuts has never been robbed, burglarized, egged, or vandalized. And to this day, the franchise's Art Deco facade remains graffiti and piss-stain-free. Customers don't park in the handicapped spot. Bicyclists leave their vehicles unlocked and unattended, stuffed neatly into the rack like... Dutch cruisers parked at an Amsterdam train station. There's something tranquil, almost monastic, about the inner-city donut shop. It's clean, spotless. The employees are always sane and respectful. Maybe it's the muted lighting or the bright decor, whose color scheme is designed to be emblematic of a maple frosted with rainbow sprinkles. Whatever it is, my father recognized the donut shop was the one place in Dickens where niggers knew how to act. People passed the non-dairy creamer. Strangers politely pointed to the tip of your nose and made the universal sign for brush the powdered sugar off your face. In 7.81 square miles of vaunted black community, the 850 square feet of Dum Dum Donuts was the only place in the community where one could experience the Latin root of the word, where a citizen could revel in common togetherness. So one rainy Sunday afternoon, not long after the tanks and media attention had left, my father ordered his usual. He sat at the table nearest the ATM and said aloud to no one in particular, Do you know that the average household net worth for whites is $113,149 per year? Hispanics is $6,325, and black folks, $5,677. For real? What's your source material, nigga? The Pew Research Center. Motherfuckers from Harvard to Harlem respect the Pew Research Center. And hearing this, the concerned patrons turned around in their squeaky plastic seats as best they could given that donut shop swivel chairs swivel only six degrees in either direction. Pops politely asked the manager to dim the lights. I switched on the overhead projector, slid a transparency over the glass, 
and together we craned our necks toward the ceiling, where a bar graph titled Income Disparity as Determined by Race hovered overhead, like some dark, damning, statistical cumulonimbus cloud threatening to rain on our collective parades. I was wondering what that little nigger was doing in a donut shop with a damn overhead projector. Next thing the people knew, my father interspersed with a macroeconomic circulation flowchart there, a sketch of Milton Friedman here, was facilitating an impromptu seminar about the evils of deregulation and institutional racism. How it wasn't the Keynesian lapdog so beloved by the banks and the media who predicted the most recent financial meltdown, but the behavioral economists who knew that the market isn't swayed by interest rates and fluctuations in GDP, rather by greed, fear, and fiscal illusion. The discussion grew animated. Their mouths stuffed with pastries, their lips flaked with coconut shavings, the dum-dum donuts patrons decreed low-interest checking and the nerve of the goddamn cable company to charge late fees for not promptly paying ahead of time in July for services not rendered until August. One woman, her jowls filled to near bursting with macaroons, asked my father, How much the chinos make? Well, Asian men earn more than any other demographic. Even the faggots? shouted the assistant manager. You sure Asians make more than the faggots? Because I hear faggots be making cash hand over fist. Yes, even the homosexuals. But remember, Asian men have no power. And what about the gay Asian males? Have you done a regression analysis controlling for race and sexual orientation? That insightful comment came from Ford Cheshire. About ten years older than my dad, standing next to the water fountain, hands in his pockets, and wearing a wool sweater, even though it was 75 degrees outside. This was way before the money and fame. Back then, he was an assistant professor in urban studies at UC Brentwood, living in Larchmont with the rest of the L.A. intellectual class, and hanging out in Dickens doing field research for his first book, Blacktopolis, The Intransigence of African-American Urban Poverty and Baggy Clothes. I think an examination of the confluence of independent variables on income could result in some interesting R coefficients. Frankly, I wouldn't be surprised by p-values in the .75 range. Despite the smug attitude, Pops took a liking to Foy right away. Though Foy was born and raised in Michigan, it wasn't often Dad found somebody in Dickens who knew the difference between a t-test and an analysis of variance. After debriefing over a box of donut holes, Everyone, locals and Foy included, agreed to meet on a regular basis, and the dum-dum donut intellectuals were born. But where my father saw an opportunity for information exchange, public advocacy, and communal counsel, Foy saw a midlife springboard to fame. Things between the two of them started amicably enough. They strategized and chased women together. But after a few years, Foy Cheshire got famous, and my father never did. Foy was no deep thinker. But back then, he was infinitely better organized than my dad, whose main strength was also his biggest weakness. He was way ahead of his time. While my dad was writing incomprehensible and unpublishable theories linking black oppression, game, and social learning theory, Foy hosted a television talk show. 
interviewing B-list celebrities and political figures, writing magazine articles, and taking meetings in Hollywood. Once, while watching my father typing away at his desk, I asked him where his ideas came from. He turned around, his tongue thick with scotch whiskey, and said, The real question is not where do ideas come from, but where do they go? So, where do they go? Punk motherfuckers like Foy Cheshire steal them and make not-so-small fortunes off your shit and invite you to the launch party like nothing happened. The idea that Foy stole from my father was an award-winning Saturday morning cartoon called The Black Cats in Jammin' Kids, a show that had been syndicated around the world, dubbed into seven languages, and in the late mid-90s made Foy enough money to buy a dream house in the hills. My father never said anything in public, never confronted Foy at the meetings because, as he put it, our people are in dire need of everything except acrimony. And in later years, when L.A. had turned Foy out like the small-town runaway he was at heart, after he'd lost his bankroll to a drug habit and a series of freckle-faced Creole L.A. women been cheated out of his residuals by the production company and had everything but his house and car seized by the IRS for tax evasion, my father kept quiet. When gun to temple, Foy, flat broke and embarrassed, called to ask my dad to nigger whisper him out of his suicidal funk, my father maintained patient doctor confidentiality, kept silent about the night sweats, the voices, the narcissistic personality disorder diagnosis, and the three-week psychiatric hospitalization. And the night my devoutly atheist father died, Foy prayed and spoke over him, hugged his lifeless body to his chest, and then acted as if the blood on his sparkling white Hugo Boss shirt was his own. You could see in his face that, despite his speech and poignant words about my father's death symbolizing black injustice, deep down, he was happy my dad was gone. Because with my dad's death, his secrets were safe. And maybe his grandiose Robespierre pipe dreams about the dum-dum donut intellectuals being the black equivalent to the Jacobins might come true. As the dum-dums debated how to mete out a measure of revenge, I adjourned the meeting early by dragging my dad's body past the drink cooler and placing his corpse on the rear end of my horse, face down on the rump, like in the cowboy movies, his arms and legs dangling in the air. At first, the members tried to stop me, because how dare I remove the martyr before they had an opportunity for a photo op. Then the police took their turn, blocking the streets with their cars so that I couldn't pass. I cried and cursed, circled my mount in the intersection and threatened anyone who came near me with a horseshoe kick to the forehead. Eventually, the call went out for the nigger whisperer, but the nigger whisperer was dead. The crisis negotiator, Police Captain Murray Flores was a man my dad had worked with on many a nigger whispering. He knew his job well enough not to soft soap the situation. And after raising my father's head up to look him in the face, he spat on the ground in disgust and said, What can I say? You can tell me how it happened. It was accidental. 
and accidental means. Off the record, it means your dad pulled up behind plainclothes officers Orozco and Medina, who were stopped at a traffic light talking to a homeless woman. After the light changed from green to red a couple of times, your dad zipped around them and, while making a louis, yelled something, whereupon Officer Orozco issued a traffic ticket and a stern warning. Your father said, either give me the ticket or the lecture. You can't give me both. He stole that from Bill Russell. Exactly. You know your father. The officers took exception, pulled their guns. Your dad ran like any sensible person would. They fired four shots into his back and left him for dead in the intersection. So now you know. You just have to allow me to do my job. You have to let the system hold the men responsible for this accountable. So just give me the body. I asked Captain Flores a question my father had asked me many times. In the history of the Los Angeles Police Department, do you know how many officers have been convicted of murder while in the line of duty? No. The answer is none. So there is no accountability. I'm taking him. Where? I'm going to bury him in the backyard. You do what you have to do. I don't think I'd ever seen a cop blow a whistle before. Not in real life. But Captain Flores blew his brass-plated whistle and waved the other officers, Foy and the dum-dum donut protesters, off. The blockade parted, and I led a very slow-moving funeral procession to 205 Bernard Avenue. It always been my father's dream to own 205 Bernard Avenue outright. The Ponderosa, he called it. Sharecropping, transracial adoption, and renting to own is for suckers, he liked to say while he poured through real estate and no-money-down investment books, punching imaginary mortgage scenarios into the calculator. My memoir... That'll be an easy 20000 up front. We can pawn your mama's jewelry for five, six thou. And even though there's an early withdrawal penalty on your college fund, if we cash that mug out now, home ownership will be right around the corner. There never was any memoir. Only titles shouted out while he was in the shower fucking some 19-year-old bubblegum-blowing colleague from the university. He'd stick his wet head out the door and, through the steam, ask what did I think about the interpretation of niggers, or my favorite, I'm I, you're I, and there was no jewelry. My mother, a former Jet Magazine Beauty of the Week, had no baubles or trinkets on and a faded tear sheet pasted above my headboard. She was a modestly coiffed, curvy expanse of thighs and lip gloss lounging on a backyard diving board in a gold lame bikini. All I knew about her was the extensive biographical information listed in the bottom right-hand corner of the photo. Laurel Lescook is a student from Key Biscayne, Florida, who enjoys biking, photography, and poetry. Later in life, I would track Miss Lescook down, she was a paralegal in Atlanta who remembered my father as a man whom she'd never met, but who after her one photo pictorial came out in September of 77, 
inundated her with marriage proposals, creepy poetry, and Kodak instamatic photos of his erect penis. Given that my college savings amounted to $236.72, the total take from my sparsely attended black mitzvah and that both my father's manuscript and my mother's jewelry collection were non-existent, you'd think we'd never come to own that house. But as luck would have it, given my father's wrongful death at the hands of the police and the $2 million settlement I'd later received, in a sense, he and I bought the farm on the same day. At first blush, his purchase of the proverbial farm seems the more metaphorical of the two transactions. But as even the most cursory of those early annual inspections by the California Department of Food and Agriculture bore out, to call 205 Bernard Avenue, that two-acre, just this side of lunar surface, fertile parcel of land in the most infamous ghetto in Los Angeles County, with its hollowed-out 1973 Winnebago chieftain motorhome for a barn, a dilapidated, overcrowded Section 8 henhouse topped by a weather vane so rusted in place that the Santa Ana winds, El Nino, and the 83 tornado couldn't move it, medfly-infested two-tree lemon grove, three horses, four pigs, a two-legged goat with shopping cart wheels for back hooves, 12 stray cats, one cowherd of livestock, and the ever-present cumulonimbus cloud of flies that circled the inflatable fishing pond of liquefied swamp gas and fermented rat shit that I pulled out of foreclosure on the very same day my dad decided to tell the undercover police officer, Edward Orozco, to move his piece of shit Ford Crown Victoria and stop blocking the goddamn intersection with funds borrowed against what the courts would later determine to be a $2 million settlement for gross miscarriage of justice. To call that unsubsidized tract of inner-city Afro-agrarian ineptitude a farm would be to push the limits of literality. Had me and Pops founded Jamestown instead of the Pilgrims, the Indians would have looked at our wilted, meandering, labyrinth-like rows of maize and kumquats and said, Today's corn planting seminar is canceled because you niggas ain't going to make it. When you grow up on a farm in the middle of the ghetto, you come to see that what your father always told you during morning chores was true. People eat the shit you shovel them. That like the pigs, we all have our heads in the trough. While the hogs don't believe in God, the American dream, or the pen being mightier than the sword, they do believe in the feed in the same desperate way we believe in the Sunday paper, the Bible, black urban radio, and hot sauce. On his off days, he'd often invite the neighborhood over just to watch me work. Though the farms was zoned for agriculture, most of the families had long abandoned the salt-of-the-earth farming lifestyle for backyard acreage that featured full-sized basketball and tennis courts and maybe a guest cottage in the corner. And although a few families still maintained chicken coops and maybe raised a cow or ran an equestrian school for at-risk youth, we were the only family giving full-scale farming a go, trying to cash in on some forgotten post-Civil War promise, 40 acres and a fool. This little nigga not gonna be like the rest of you niggas. My father would crow, one hand on his dick, the other pointing at me. My son gonna be a renaissance nigger. 
a modern-day Galileo out this motherfucker. Then he'd crack open a bottle of Bumpy Face, hand out the paper cups, ice cubes, and splashes of lemon-lime soda. And from the back porch, they'd watch me pick strawberries, snow peas, or whatever the fuck was in season. Cotton was the worst. Forget the stooping, the thorns, the droning Paul Ropes and spirituals that he played loud enough to drown out the Lopez's ranchero music coming from next door, or that planting, watering, and harvesting cotton was a complete waste of time because the only gin we had was the styrofoam cup of Seagram's in his hand. Picking cotton sucked because it made Daddy nostalgic. A sentimental drunk and full of gin and juice pride, he'd brag to our black neighbors how I'd never spent a day in daycare or had a sandbox playdate. Instead, he swore up and down I was nannied and mammied by a sow named Susie Q and was the loser in a sibling piglet versus niglet rivalry to a poor sign genius named Savoir Fair. Daddy's friends would watch me expertly pluck cotton balls from the dried stems, waiting for me to snort and overthrow the Orwellian social order and thus confirm my hog-tied upbringing. One Whatever goes upon two legs is an enemy. Two, whatever goes on four legs or six wings and a biscuit is a friend. Three, no pigger shall wear shorts in the fall, much less the winter. Four, no pigger shall be caught sleeping. Five, no pigger shall drink pre-sweetened Kool-Aid. Six, all piggers are created equal, but some piggers ain't shit. I don't remember my father tying my right hand behind my back or being babysat in the pig pen, but I do remember pushing savoir faire, one hand on each prickly, milk-fattened hindquarter, up the wooden ramp and into the trailer. The last driver on earth to use hand signals, my father took the corners slowly, lecturing me on how fall was the best time to kill a pig because there were less flies and the meat would keep for a while outside, because once you freeze it, the quality starts to go down. Unbuckled, like any child raised before car seats and airbags, I knelt in the seat facing backward, looking out that tiny rear window at Savoir Faire, the doomed, cloven-hoofed genius squealing like a 400-pound bitch the whole way to the slaughterhouse. You done won your last game of Connect Four, you fucking getting mucus on the pieces. I sunk your battleship. King me, son of a bitch. At stoplights, Daddy would stick his arm out of the window, bent at the elbow, hand toward the ground, palm facing the rear. People eat the shit you shovel them, he'd shout over the radio music. Somehow shifting, steering, turning on the blinker, making the hand signal a left turn, singing along to Ella Fitzgerald and reading the L.A. Times bestseller list all at the same time. People eat the shit you shovel them. I'd like to say I buried my father in the backyard and that day I became a man, or some other droll American bullshit, but all that happened was that day I became relieved. No more trying to look uninvolved as my own father fought for parking spaces at the farmer's market. 
shouting down Beverly Hills dowagers, asserting their luxury sedan right of way by nosing their gigantic cars into spaces marked compact only. You stupid, over-medicated bitch. If you don't back that fucking jalopy out my space, I swear to God I'm gonna punch you in your anti-aging cold cream face and permanently reverse 500 years of white privilege and $500,000 of plastic surgery. People eat the shit you shovel them. And sometimes, when I pull up to the drive through window on horseback or return the disbelieving stares of a convertible carload of out-of-town vatos pointing at the black vaquero grazing his livestock in the trash-strewn fields underneath the power lines that stretch Eiffel Tower-like alongside West Greenleaf Boulevard, I think about all the lines of ad infinitum bullshit my father shoveled down my throat until his dreams became my dreams. Sometimes, while I'm sharpening the plowshare and shearing the sheep, I feel like every moment of my life isn't mine, but one of his deja vus. No, I don't miss my father. I just regret that I never had the nerve to ask him if it was really true that I'd spent the sensory motor and pre-operational stages of my life with one hand tied behind my back. Talk about starting life off with a handicap. Fuck being black. Try learning to crawl, ride a tricycle, cover both eyes while playing peekaboo, and constructing a meaningful theory of mind, all with one hand. Chapter 4 You won't find Dickens, California, on the map, because about five years after my father died and a year after I graduated college, it too perished. There was no loud send-off. Dickens didn't go out with a bang like Nagasaki, Sodom and Gomorrah, and my dad. It was quietly removed, like those towns that vanished from maps of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, atomic accident by atomic accident. But the city of Dickens's disappearance was no accident. It was part of a blatant conspiracy by the surrounding, increasingly affluent two-car garage communities to keep their property values up and blood pressures down. When the housing boom hit in the early part of the century, many moderate-income neighborhoods in Los Angeles County underwent real estate makeovers. Once pleasant working-class enclaves became rife with fake tits and fake graduation and crime rates, hair and tree transplants, lipo and cholo suctions. In the wee hours of the night, after the community boards, homeowner associations, and real estate moguls banded together and coined descriptive names for nondescript neighborhoods, someone would bolt a large, glittery Mediterranean blue sign high up on a telephone pole. And when the fog lifted, the residents of the soon-to-be-gentrified blocks awoke to find out they lived in Crestview, La Cienega Heights, or Westdale, even though there weren't any topographical features like crests, views, heights, or dales to be found within ten miles. Nowadays, Angelenos, who used to see themselves as denizens of the west, east, and south sides, wage protracted legal battles over whether their two-bedroom, charming country cottages reside within the confines of Beverly Wood or Beverly Wood adjacent. Dickens underwent a different type of transition. One clear south-central morning, we awoke to find that the city hadn't been renamed, 
but the signs that said, Welcome to the city of Dickens, were gone. There was never an official announcement, an article in the paper, or a feature on the evening news. No one cared. In a way, most Dickensians were relieved to not be from anywhere. It saved them the embarrassment of having to answer the small talk, where are you from, question with Dickens, than watching the person apologetically back away from you. Sorry about that. Don't kill me. Rumor had it, the county had revoked our charter because of the admittedly widespread local political corruption. The police and fire stations were closed down. You'd call what used to be City Hall, and a foul-mouthed teenager named Rebecca would answer. Don't no niggas named Dickens live here, so don't be calling here no more. The autonomous school board dismantled. Internet searches turned up only references to Dickens. Charles John Huffam, and to a Dust Bowl county in Texas named after some unfortunate sap who may or may not have died at the Alamo. In the years after my father died, the neighborhood looked to me to be the next nigger whisperer. I wish I could say that I answered the call to duty out of a sense of familial pride and communal concern, but the truth was, I did it because I had no social life. Nigger whispering got me out of the house and away from the crops and the animals. I met interesting people and tried to convince them that no matter how much heroin and R. Kelly they had in their systems, they absolutely could not fly. When my father nigger whispered, it didn't look so hard. Unfortunately, I wasn't blessed with my father's sonorous, luxury car commercial voiceover bass profundo. I'm squeamishly shrill and possess all the speaking gravitas of the shyest member of your favorite boy band. The skinny, soft-spoken one, who in the music video sits in the back seat of the convertible and never gets the girl, much less a solo. So I was issued a bullhorn. Ever try to whisper through a bullhorn? Up until the city's disappearance, the workload wasn't so bad. I was an every-other-month crisis negotiator, a farmer doing a little nigger whispering on the side. But since Dickens's erasure, I found myself in my pajamas at least once a week, standing barefoot in an apartment complex courtyard, bullhorn in hand, staring up at some distraught, partially hot-combed-headed mother dangling her baby over a second-floor balcony ledge. When my father did the whispering, Friday nights were the busiest. Every payday he'd be inundated by teeming hordes of the bipolar poor, who, having spent it all in one place and grown tired and unsated from the night's notoriously shitty primetime television lineup, would unwedge themselves from between the couch-bound obese family members and the boxes of unsold Avon beauty products, turn off the kitchen radio, pumping song after song, extolling the virtues of Friday nights, living it up at the club, popping bottles, niggers, and cherries in that order, then having canceled the next day's appointment with their mental health care professional, the chatterbox cosmetologist, who, after years doing heads, still knows only one hairstyle, fried, dyed, and laid to the side. They'd choose that Friday, day of Venus, goddess of love, beauty, and unpaid bills, to commit suicide, murder, or both. But under my watch, People tend to snap on Wednesday, hump day, 
And so sans juju, gri-gri, and the foggiest notion of what to say, I'll press the trigger, and with a loud squeal of ear-piercing feedback, the bullhorn buzzes to staticky life. Half the unchosen tribe waiting for me to say the magic words and save the day, the other half waiting expectantly for a bathrobe to fly open and some milk-and-gorged titties to come popping out. Sometimes I open with a little humor, remove a slip of paper from a large manila envelope, and in my best impersonation of a sensationalist afternoon talk show host, announce, When it comes to eight-month-old Kobe Jordan Kareem LeBron Mayweather III, I am not the father, but I wish I were. And providing I don't look too much like the baby's real father, the mother will laugh, and dropped the little crumb snatcher, shit-filled diaper and all, into my waiting arms. Usually it isn't so simple. Most times, there's so much Nina Simone, Mississippi goddamn despondency in the night air, it becomes hard to focus. The deep purple contusions about the face and arms, the terry cloth robe finally falling seductively off the shoulders, revealing the woman to be a man, a man with hormonally induced breasts, shaved pubes, surprisingly shapely hips, and a tire iron brandishing significant other who underneath that bulky sweatshirt and baseball cap cocked to the side might be a man or just mannish, but either way is maniacally pacing the carport, threatening to bash in my skull if I say the wrong thing. The baby, swaddled in blue because blue is for crip-centric boys, will be either too fat or too skinny, crying its little lungs out so loudly you'd wish it'd shut up, or even worse, so bone-chillingly quiet that under the circumstances you think it must already be dead. And invariably, softly in the background, billowing the curtains through the parted, sliding glass doors, there's always Nina Simone. These are the women my father warned me about. The drug and asshole adult women who sit in the dark, hard up and lovesick, chain-smoking cigarettes, phones pressed to their ears, speed-dialing K-Earth 101 FM, the oldie station. So they can request Nina Simone or the Shirelles, this is dedicated to the one I love, a.k.a. this is dedicated to niggas that beat me senseless and leave. Stay away from bitches who love Nina Simone and have faggots for best friends, he'd say. They hate men. Swinging by its tiny heels, the baby carves giant, parabolic, fast-pitch softball windmill circles in the air, and I stand there useless, a vacant look on my face, a nigger whisperer without secrets and sweet nothings to whisper. The crowd murmurs that I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't. You don't stop fucking around, man. You're going to get that baby killed. Killed. Whatever, nigga. Just say something. They all think that after my dad died, I went away to college, majored in psychology, and returned to continue his good work. But I have no interest in psychoanalytic theory, ink splotches, the human condition, and in giving something back to the community. I went to the University of California at Riverside because it had a decent agricultural studies department. 
Majored in animal sciences with dreams of turning daddy's land into a hatchery where I could sell ostriches to all the early 90s heavy rotation rappers. First round draft choices and big budget movie sidekicks eager to invest their Skrilla and who, after flying first class for the first time in their lives, laid down the dog-eared financial section of the in-flight magazine in their laps and thought to themselves, shit, ostrich meat is indeed the future. It sounds like a financial no-brainer. A nutritious FDA-approved ostrich steak sells for $20 a pound. The feathers go for $5 a piece, and those bumpy brown leather hides are worth 200 bucks each. But the real money would be on my end in selling breeders to the nouveau nigger riche. Because the average bird yields only about 40 pounds of edible meat. Because Oscar Wilde is dead. And no one wears plumage and feathered hats anymore except for drag queens over 40, Bavarian tuba players, Marcus Garvey impersonators, and mint julep-sipping Kentucky Derby trifecta-betting Southern Bells who wouldn't buy black if you were selling the secret to ageless, wrinkle-free skin and nine inches of dick. I knew full well the birds are impossible to raise. And I didn't have the startup capital, but let's just say my sophomore year the UC Riverside Small Farm Program was missing a few two-legged dissertations. Because like the drug dealers say, if I don't do it, somebody else will. And believe me when I tell you that to this day, the cracked and abandoned nest eggs of many a bankrupt one-hit wonder run wild in the San Gabriel Mountains. I don't know what to say. Didn't you major in psychology like your daddy? All I know is a little animal husbandry. Shit. Being married to these animals is what gets these bitches into trouble in the first place, so you best say something to this heifer. I minored in crop sciences and management because Professor Farley, my intro to agronomy teacher, said that I was a natural horticulturist, that I could be the next George Washington Carver if I wanted to be. All I needed to do was apply myself and find my own equivalent to the peanut. A legume of my own, she joked, placing a single fasciolus vulgaris into my palm. But anyone who'd ever been to Tito's Tacos and tasted a warm cup full of the greasy, creamy, refried frijole slop covered in a solid half inch of melted cheddar cheese knew the bean had already reached genetic perfection. I remember wondering... Why George Washington Carver? Why couldn't I have been the next Gregor Mendel? The next whoever it was that invented the Chia Pet? And even though nobody remembers Captain Kangaroo, the next Mr. Green Jeans. So I chose to specialize in the plant life that had the most cultural relevance to me. Watermelon and weed. At best, I'm a subsistence farmer. But three or four times a year... I'll hitch a horse to the wagon and clomp through Dickens, hawking my wares. Mongo Santa Maria's Watermelon Man blasting from the boombox. That song pounding in the distance has been known to stop summer league basketball games mid-fast break and many a ding-dong ditch, double-dutch marathon early, and force the women and children waiting at the intersection of Compton and Firestone for the last weekend visitation bus to the L.A. County Jail to make a difficult decision. Although they're not hard to grow, and I've been selling them for years, folks still go crazy at the sight of a square watermelon. 
And like that black president, you'd think that after two terms of looking at a dude in a suit deliver the State of the Union address, you'd get used to square watermelons, but somehow you never do. The pyramidal shapes are big sellers also. And around Easter, I sell bunny rabbit-shaped ones that I've genetically altered so that if you squint, the dark lines in the rind spell out Jesus saves. Those I can't keep on the wagon, but it's the taste that keeps them coming back. Think of the best watermelon you've ever had. Now add a hint of anise and brown sugar. Seeds that you're reluctant to spit out because they cool your mouth like the last sweet remnants of a cola-covered ice cube melting on the tip of your tongue. I've never seen it, but they say people have bitten into my watermelon and fainted straight away. That paramedics, fresh from CPR rescues of customers nearly drowned in six inches of blue backyard plastic wading pool water, don't ask about heat stroke or a family history of heart disease. Their faces covered in sticky red remnants of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation nectar, their cheeks freckled with black seeds. They stop licking their lips only long enough to ask, Where did you get the watermelon? Sometimes, when I'm in an unfamiliar neighborhood looking for a stray goat on the Latino side of Harris Avenue, a clique of peewees fresh out of cholo school, their newly shorn scalps gleaming in the sun, will step to me, grab me by the shoulders, and with a forceful reverence say, Por la sandilla, gracias. But even in sunny California, you can't grow watermelon year-round. The winter nights are colder than people think. 20-pound melons take forever to mature, and they suck nitrate out of the soil like it's sodium crack. So it's the marijuana that's my mainstay. I rarely sell it. Weed isn't a cash crop, but more like a gas money one. Plus, I don't want motherfuckers running up on me in the middle of the night. Occasionally, I'll pull out an eighth and the unsuspecting homie who's been weaned on the chronic and who now lies on my front lawn covered in dirt and grass, laughing his ass off, his legs entwined in the frame of the bicycle he's forgotten how to ride, will proudly hold up the joint he never dropped and ask me, What this shit call? Ataxia, I'll say. On the house party dance floor, when La Giggles, whom I've known since second grade, finally stops staring incessantly into her compact mirror at a face she likes but doesn't quite recognize, she turns to me and asks three questions. Who am I? And who this nigga sticking his tongue in my ear grinding on my ass? And what the fuck am I smoking? The answers to her questions are Bridget, La Giggles, Sanchez, your husband, and prostopagnosia. Sometimes folks wonder why I always have the kind bird, but any suspicious curiosity can be allayed with a shrug of the shoulders and a deadpan, oh, I know some white boys. Light up a joint, exhale. Weed that smells bad is good, and a dank, wispy cloud of smoke that smells like red tide at Huntington Beach, dead fish and seagulls roasting in the hot sun, will make a woman stop twirling her baby. Offer her a hit, sloppy end first. She'll nod. It's anglophobia, a strain that I've just developed, but she doesn't need to know that. Anything that will allow me to come closer is a good thing. 
approach in peace and climb the ivory-covered latticework or stand on some big nigger's shoulders and put myself within arm's reach so that I can touch her. Stroke her with techniques that are basically the same ones I used on the thoroughbreds at school after a work-study day of galloping and breezing horses in the fields. Rub her ears, blow gently into her nostrils, work her joints, brush her hair, shotgun weed smoke into her pursed and needy lips. When she hands me the baby and I descend the stairs into the applause of the awaiting crowd, I'd like to think that Gregor Mendel, George Washington Carver, and even my father would be proud, and sometime, while they're being strapped to the gurney or consoled by a distraught grandmother, I'll ask them, why Wednesday? Chapter 5 Dickens's Evanesse hit some folks harder than others. But the citizen who needed my services the most was old man Hominy Jenkins. Hominy had always been a little unstable, but my father never really dealt with him. I don't think he thought losing a gray-haired relic to Uncle Tom's past would be any great loss to the neighborhood, so it'd be up to me to go get that fool nigger. I guess, in a sense, Hominy was my first nigger whispery. I can't count how many times I had to wrap a blanket around him because he was trying to commit suicide by a gangbanger by wearing red in the blue neighborhoods, blue in the red, or shouting, Yo soy el gran pinche mayate. Julio Cesar Chavez es un puto. In the brown. He used to climb palm trees and recite Tarzan lines to the natives. Me, Tarzan. You, Shaniqua. And I'd have to beg every woman in the neighborhood to lower her gun and coax Hominy down with a phony contract from a long-dead movie studio front-loaded with beer and smokehouse almond signing bonuses. One Halloween, he yanked the doorbell wires from his living room wall and attached them to his testes. So when the trick-or-treaters rang the buzzer, instead of candy and an autographed photo... They got blood-curdling screams that continued until I fought my way through the sadistic throng of fairy godmothers and superheroes and pulled She-Hulk's green eight-year-old finger away from the ringer long enough for me to talk Hominy into pulling his pants up and the shades down. As the supposed murder capital of the world, Dickens never got much tourist trade. Occasionally, a pack of college kids vacationing in Los Angeles for the first time would stop at a busy intersection just long enough to shoot 20 seconds of shaky handheld video of them jumping up and down, whooping like crazed savages, shouting, Check us out! We're in Dickens, California! What you know about that, fool? Then post the footage of their urban safari on the Internet. But when all the Welcome to Dickens signs were removed... There was no Blarney Stone to kiss. The urban voyeurs stopped coming. Sometimes genuine sightseers did come through. Mostly old and pensioned, they'd troll the streets in their out-of-state license-plated RVs looking for the last link to their youths. Those halcyon days, the campaign politicians always promised to take us back to when America was powerful and respected. A land of morals and virtue, and cheap gas. And asking a local, excuse me, do you know where I can find Hominy? was like asking some penny-ante lounge singer if they knew the way to San Jose.
Harmony Jenkins is the last surviving member of the Little Rascals, that madcap posse of street urchins who, from the Roaring Twenties until the Reaganomics Eighties, flummoxed pot-bellied coppers, ditching school seven days a week and twice on Sundays on matinee movie screens and after-school televisions around the world. Signed by Hal Roach Studios in the mid-1930s, at a reputed $350 a week to be Buckwheat Thomas's understudy, Hominy cashed his checks and bided his time by playing minor roles. The silent little brother who had to be babysat while mother was away visiting papa in jail. The colored kid on the ass end of the runaway mule. He made do delivering the occasional throwaway one-liner from the back of the one-room schoolhouse, acknowledging talking babies, wild men from Borneo, and Alfalfa's soap bubble solos with an exaggerated roll of the eyeballs and his trademark, Yowza. The underutilization of his sooty black cuteness made bearable with the knowledge that one day, soon, he'd step into the oversized, curly-toed genie shoes of the great pickaninnies that preceded him. Take his rightful place in the wisecracking pantheon of Farina, Stymie, and Buckwheat, and carry the legacy of bowler-hatted ragamuffin racism well into the 1950s. But the era of the human gollywog and the one reeler died before his turn came. Hollywood had all the blackness it needed in the demi-whiteness of Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier, the brooding negritude of James Dean, and the broad gravity-defying Venus-hot-to-trot roundness of Marilyn Monroe's ass. When they found his house... Hominy would greet his devotees with a wide, polydent smile and an arthritic, finger-wiggling high sign, inviting them in for high-sea fruit punch and, if they were lucky, slices of my watermelon. I doubt that he told his aging fan base the same stories he shared with us. It's hard to say what started the love affair between me and Marpessa Delissa Dawson. She's three years older than me, and I've known her all my life. A lifelong resident of the farms. Her mother ran the son-to-son equestrian and polo school from their backyard. They used to call me whenever they were short a show jumper or a number four on the junior spear chuckers. I wasn't much good at either, because Appaloosas are shitty jumpers, and using your left hand is illegal in polo. When we were younger, me, Marpessa, and the rest of the kids on the block would jet over to Hominy's house after school, because what could be cooler than watching an hour of Little Rascals with a Little Rascal? In those days, when remote-controlled television was your father screaming, Sean, Don, Ma, one of you motherfuckers come downstairs and change this goddamn channel. Fine-tuning a fickle, ultra-high-frequency station like Channel 52, KBSC-TV, Corona, Los Angeles, on a beat-up, black-and-white portable, missing one rabbit-ear antenna, and all its dials required a vascular surgeon's touch. It took forever to finagle a set of plumbing pliers around the stubby metal knobs, looking for any angularity that might result in the weeest bit of a channel-changing torque or vertical and horizontal hold. But when the opening title sequence, accompanied by the drunken warbling horns in the R-Gang theme song, popped up on the TV. We'd settle in around gray-haired hominy and those red-hot space heater coils like slave children gathered round old Remus and his fire. Tell us another story, Uncle Remus. We means hominy. 
um, ever tell you all about the time I fucked the shit out of Donna on the E-Man Woman Haters Club set during our 20th reunion? I didn't realize it then, but Harmony, like any other child star still standing in the Klieg light afterglow of a long-ago canceled career, was batshit crazy. We thought that he was being funny, dry-humping the TV with every low-angle shot of Darla's exposed lace panties. In real life, that bitch wasn't as stingy with the pussy as she was in the movies. Slamming his pelvis into the screen, shouting, That's for Alfalfa, Mickey, Porky, Chubby, Froggy, Butch, that stuck-up punk Wally, and the rest of the gang. Punctuating his blue balls roll call with increasingly violent thrusts. Needless to say, there's an anger to Harmony. One that comes from not being as famous as you think you should be. When he wasn't reminiscing about his sexual conquests, Harmony liked to brag about how he was fluent in four languages because they shot each short four times, once in English, French, Spanish, and German. The first time he told us this, we laughed in his face because all his mentor Buckwheat did was flash his greasy gap-toothed grin and say, Okay, Panky, in that marble-mouthed pickin'-any perfect of his. And okay spanky is okay spanky in any fucking language. Once, one of my favorite episodes, Mush and Milk, was on, and to prove his boast, Harmony turned down the volume just as the gang sat around the Bleak Hill boarding school breakfast table, Kindly, old Cap was waiting on his back pension. The house mother, wrinkled and as temperamental as a dog-pound Sharpay, spat and hissed at the kids, one of whom, having screwed up the morning chores, whispers into another urchin's ear a line we didn't need sound to hear because we'd heard it a million times. Don't drink the milk, we said aloud. Why? A tow-headed white boy mouthed. It's spoiled, we whispered in unison. Don't drink the milk, pass it on. And Hominy did just that, dubbing each waif's warning to the next rascal down in a different language. No bebas la leche. ¿Por qué? Está mala. Ne bois pas la leche. ¿Pourquoi? Se gâte. Trink die milk nicht. Warum? Die ist schlecht. Don't drink the milk. Why? It's spoiled. The milk was spoiled because in reality it was liquefied plaster of Paris that hadn't yet hardened into a sight gag, and child stardom spoiled hominy. Sometimes after a particularly abrupt edit for the sake of political correctness, he'd stomp his feet and pout. I was in that scene. They edited me out. Spanky finds Aladdin's lamp. He rubs it and says, I wish hominy was a monkey. I wish Harmony was a monkey. And lo and motherfucking behold, I'm a motherfucking monkey. A monkey? A capuchin, to be exact. And my method acting monkey ass hit the streets running, baby. And I comes across a nigger soda jerk making time with his old lady. He closes his eyes, leans in for a little loving. She sees me, splits, and that fool plants a wet one right on my big pink simian lips. That had them rolling in the aisles. A lad in a lamp. Most screen time I ever had. I fought the whole damn police force 
And by the end of the picture, me and Spanky eating cake and shit and running the whole goddamn town. And let me tell you, Spanky was without question the coolest motherfucking white boy ever. Yowza. It was hard to determine if he'd been turned into a real monkey or if Hal Roach Studios, never known for its extravagant special effects, just opened up the timeless cookbook of classic American stereotyping and turned to the one-step recipe for Negro monkey shines. One, just add tail. Whatever the case, as the celluloid snippets of censored slapstick racism piled up on the cutting room floor, it became apparent that Hominy was a sort of little rascal stunt coon. His film career was a compendium of unseen outtakes where he's doused with all things white, sunny-side-up eggs, paint, and pancake flour avalanches. Eyeballs bulging with fear and hyperthyroidism, sometimes the sight of a ghost in an abandoned house or a congregation of newly baptized Holy Ghost Negroes speaking in tongues and somnambulating through the thick of the local forest, or a white nightshirt blowing eerily on a clothesline like a hoodoo ghost come to billowing life would scare the shit out of Hominy, turn him albino white, blow out his afro to freakishly long, scared straight proportions and send him running headlong into a swamp tree through a wooden fence or a plate glass window. And he was constantly being electrocuted, both by his own ineptitude and by acts of God, whose supposedly random lightning strikes somehow never failed to miss the crack of his suspender-pants-covered ass. In Frankly Ben Franklin, after the prototype is chewed up by Petey the Pitbull, who else but Hominy would volunteer to be the bespectacled Spanky's kite? Sewn spread eagle onto a giant Betsy Ross flag, wearing nothing but a set of tattered slave breeches, a tricomb hat, with a metal rod sticking out of its crown and a placard hanging from his neck that in runny ink reads, These are the times that fry men's souls, Nathan Hale. He soars high in the sky, a flying black squirrel sailing through the stinging rain, gale-force winds, and the fusillade of lightning bolts. There's a thunderclap, followed by a cloud of sparks, and Spanky, examining a glowing, electrified skeleton key attached to the kite string, Eureka, he's about to say. Before he's rudely interrupted from above, where Hominy, stuck in the tree branches, a smoldering, ashen heap, smoke billowing from every orifice, eyes and teeth forever phosphorescent, delivers the longest line of his career. Yowza! I done discovered electricity! Over time, with the advent of cable television, home video games, and Melanie Price's bodacious eighth-grade bosoms, which she liked to show off in bedroom window strip-tease acts that started at the exact same time the little rascals did, one by one the gang stopped visiting Harmony after school, until it was only me and Marpessa left. I'm not sure why she stayed. She had her own 15-year-old tube-top breast to show off. Sometimes the older guys would come up to the door and ask her to come outside to talk, but she'd always wait until the little rascals was over, leaving the homeboys on Hominy's porch. I'd like to think that Marpesa liked me even then, but I know it was probably pity and a sense of safety that kept her around from 3.30 to 4, munching on grapes and watching the gang put on extravagant backyard variety shows featuring raspy-voiced seven-year-olds 
and colored kids tap dancing up a storm. What harm could a 13-year-old homeschooled farm boy and superannuated coon do? Marpesa? Huh? Wipe your chin. It's wet. Let me tell you, that's not all that's wet. That's how good these goddamn grapes is. You really grow these yourself? Yep. Why? Homework. Your father's fucking crazy. I suppose that's what I first loved about Marpesa, her unabashed inappropriateness. I guess I loved her titties, too. Although, like she said whenever she caught me staring at them, I wouldn't know what to do with them if I ever had half the chance. Eventually, the lure of older boys with drug money and sperm counts outweighed the sonorous charms of alfalfa in a cowboy hat singing Home on the Range, and for the longest time, it was just me, Hominy, and the grapes. I never regretted passing up the side-yard peep shows with my friends. I always figured that if Marpesa kept eating my grapes and drooling nectar down her ample chest, sooner or later those drill-bit hard nipples would bore through the wet spots on her shirt. Sadly, I never saw a three-dimensional memory until the eve of my 16th birthday when I woke up one night to find Tasha, one of my dad's teaching assistants, sitting on the edge of my bed, naked, reeking of postcoital must and muscatel, and reading Nancy Chodoro aloud. Mothers are women, of course, because a mother is a female parent. We can talk about a man mothering a child if he is this child's primary nurturing figure or is acting in a nurturant manner. But we would never talk about a woman fathering a child. To this day, whenever I'm lonely, I touch myself thinking about Tasha's titty and how Freudian hermeneutics doesn't apply to Dickens. A place where, often as not, it's the child who raises the parents, where the Oedipus and Electra complexes are simple. Sons, daughters, step-parents, or play cousins, it doesn't matter, since everybody's fucking each other over and penis envy doesn't exist because sometimes niggas just got too much dick. I don't know exactly why, but I felt like I owed Hominy something for all those afternoons Marpessa and I spent at his house. That there's something about the craziness that he had to go through that's kept me relatively sane. And one blustery Wednesday morning, about three years ago, during a well-earned afternoon nap, I heard Marpessa's voice in my sleep. Hominy was all she said. After scrambling outside, I found a hastily written sign scotch-taped to Hominy's screen door fluttering in the breeze. Eyes in the back, it read. His penmanship, typical little rascal, squiggly yet surprisingly legible. The back was Hominy's memorabilia room. A small 15 by 15 add-on that was once crammed with a treasure trove of R-gang props, headshots, and costumes. There weren't many memories left. Most, like the suit of armor from which Spanky recited Mark Antony's soliloquy in Shivering Shakespeare under a barrage of pea shooters, the lock of Alfalfa's personality, the top hat and tails Buckwheat wore when he conducted the club Spanky Big Band and made hundreds and thousands of dollars in the R-Gang Follies of 1938. 
The long-ass hook-and-ladder scrap metal fire engine used to win Jane back from the rich kid with the real fire engine and the kazoos, flutes, and spoons that made up the wind and rhythm sections of the International Silver String Band had been long pawned and auctioned off. As advertised, Hominy was indeed in the back, buck naked and hanging by his neck from a wooden beam. Two feet away from him sat a folding chair marked reserved, and on its seat a photocopy playbill for curtain call, a one act of desperation. The noose was a bungee cord stretched to its bike rack limit, so much so that if he'd worn anything bigger than a size eight shoe, his toes would have touched the ground. His face turning a deep shade of blue, I watched him twist in the draft. I had half a mind to let him die. Cut my penis off and stuff it into my mouth, he rasped with what air was left in his lungs. Apparently asphyxiation makes your penis hard, and his brown member sprouted like a twig from a frizzy snowball of shock-white pubic hair. Like an antique whirligig, he kicked about frantically, as much from his simultaneous attempt to burn himself in effigy as from the paucity of oxygen reaching his already Alzheimer's brain. Fuck the white man's burden. Hominy Jenkins was my burden, and I knocked the can of kerosene and the lighter from his hand. Walked, not ran, back home to look for the gardening shears and some skin lotion. Taking my sweet time, because I knew that racist Negro archetypes like Bebe's kids don't die, they multiply. Because the kerosene splashed on my shirt smelled like Zima, but mostly because my father said he never panicked when someone from the neighborhood tried to hang themselves, because, for the life of them, Black people can't tie knots for shit. I cut the self-lynching drama queen down, lowered him gently to the rayon-carpeted floor, and coddled his scraggly head. He filled my armpit with snot and tears as I rubbed cortisone into his rope-chafed neck and flipped through the playbill. On page two was a publicity shot of our boy chilling with the Marx Brothers on the set of the unreleased sequel to A Day at the Races, called A Day Among the Races. The Marx Brothers sit in backward-facing director's chairs labeled Groucho, Chico, Harpo, and Zeppo. At the lineup's far end is a high chair whose back reads Depresso. In it, sitting cross-legged, is six-year-old Hominy, a thick white Groucho mustache painted on his upper lip. The photo is signed to Hominy Jenkins, the Schwarze sheep of the family. Best wishes from the Marxists, Groucho, Carl, Skid, Italia. Below this was Hominy's bio, a sad listing of his meager screen credits that read like a suicide note. Hominy Jenkins, Hominy Jenkins, Hominy's happy to make both his theatrical debut and his swan song at the Backroom Repertory Theater. In 1933, Hominy first put his wild, unkempt afro to good use when he debuted as the wailing, abandoned native baby boy in the original King Kong. He went on to survive that near Skull Island stomping and has since specialized in portraying black boys from the ages of 8 to 80, including most notably in Black Beauty, Stable Boy, Uncredited, War of the Worlds, 
Paperboy, uncredited. Captain Blood, cabin boy, uncredited. Charlie Chan joins the clan, busboy, uncredited. Every film shot in Los Angeles between 1937 and 1964, Shushan Boy, uncredited.